And away we go. Don't hit that skip button because I have huge news for you. The Rewind of the Living Dead t-shirt lives. It is here. It is available to purchase. Oh, yes, I'm not kidding. We finally got our Rewind of the Living Dead t-shirt out, and it's amazing. It is printed by the same company that prints for Cavity Colors and Fright Rags, which if you're a hardcore horror fan who buys a lot of horror t-shirts, I know I do, you know that's the very best and highest quality because we couldn't do anything less for our fans. It's an amazing full-color design designed by Jason Ragosta. It's very cool. It features a zombified myself, a zombified Damon, and it looks just like an awesome horror shirt because that's what we want because we're horror fans too. So we wanted to make a t-shirt that you could really sink your teeth into. Go to rewindofthelivingdead.bigcartel.com. Again, that's rewindofthelivingdead.bigcartel.com to get your t-shirt today. Rewind of the Living Dead is a review show, so spoilers are ahead. While studying as a film student at the University of Southern California, screenwriter Dan O'Bannon got his start making movies when he worked on a project with fellow classmate John Carpenter on a horror comedy called Dark Star. After that film started to generate some buzz, O'Bannon decided he wanted to do another science fiction film with a much more realistic looking alien that leaned more into horror than comedy. He soon teamed with writer Ronald Chousset to come up with a story that they titled Star Beast, about an alien boarding a ship field with an unsuspecting crew that had no idea what they were up against. After the script was finished, they started pitching the idea to studios around town as Jaws in Space, but nobody was biting. It wasn't until after Star Wars was released in 1977 that major studios decided to double down on sci-fi films and O'Bannon's script finally started getting attention. Walter Hill joined as a producer, but several directors passed on the project until they finally came around to Ridley Scott after seeing his work on the film The Duelists. Set on the starship Nostromo, a seven-person crew is awakened from a deep slumber with a mission to investigate a distress signal that could indicate possible alien life on another planet. What they find and what comes back with them is more horrific than anything they could ever imagine. In the latest episode of Rewind of the Living Dead, we travel to space where no one can hear us scream as we kick off our latest franchise deep dive by reviewing the 1979 sci-fi horror classic, Alien. Damon Martin and happy new year everyone it's me Patrick Guerra and Patrick we are officially kicking off the new year with our fresh first franchise of the year we are going to be talking about alien real quick I gotta say did my intro do it justice because it was kind of long and I was kind of involved it's like did I go too deep on that one Damon this movie needed an epic intro from the great writer Damon Martin of course it did and yes we are kicking off the new year with a new franchise we haven't done a franchise in fact I don't think we even did one in 2023 a full franchise coverage we are covering the alien franchise we're kicking it off right at the top of the year with alien of course uh, Damon alien one of my favorite films of all time actually the favorite film of all time i've my list has bounced around as much as i uh, over the years as i could but truth be told 
now it's solidified. And after rewatching it, not once, but twice for this show, uh, I am I am solid in the fact that Alien is indeed my favorite movie of all time ever. And to give you a few stats on that, uh, other than the ones you did in this fantastic intro, Alien was released June 22nd, 1979. It stars Tom Skerritt as Dallas, Veronica Cartwright as Lambert, Harry Dean Stanton as Brett, John Hurt as Kane, Ian Holm as Ash, Yafet Koto as Parker, Balaji Badejo as the Alien, and of course, Damon, the great Sigourney Weaver stars as our hero, Ripley, written by one of our favorites, Dan O'Bannon, of course, from Return of the Living Dead fame, the, the reason we have the name of our show, and as you mentioned, Ronald Chusette, and directed, of course, by the great Ridley Scott, and I have a feeling, Damon, he became great because, boy, did he pull off a fucking movie called Alien. This movie had so many, like, moving parts that came together and just made the perfect machine. When you really think about it, because this was basically, this was Sigourney Weaver's second film ever. And really it was her first, you know, it was her breakout role, of course, but it was really her second time she'd ever really been in front of a camera like this. And that's remarkable for the performance she gave and for what launched her career. Ridley Scott, of course, we know has gone on to do a million things and the influences felt in this film from 2001 a space odyssey to texas chainsaw massacre to uh the shining there's so many different you know, there's a lot of stanley kubrick in here the influences are great but then alien went on to become one of the greatest influences in sci-fi history films for the last 30 plus years have tried to duplicate what's alien accomplished the cast beyond sigourney weaver was incredible tom scarrett uh you mentioned all the names there it is it is the perfect storm of science fiction and horror, and it stands maybe, I mean, it may stand atop the totem pole as the greatest science fiction horror film of all time. I'd be, you know, I'd have to really dig into the, you know, the, the archives to see if I'm missing something, but I'd be hard pressed to find something better than this as far as blending science fiction and horror together. And I'm excited to do this franchise because I think we've well documented on this show. Alien is your favorite film of all time. And I love Alien. Let me be clear about that. But Aliens, the sequel, the James Cameron sequel, might be one of my top five films ever. I mm-hmm. love, I adore that movie. Don't, again, be clear. I adore <laughs> Alien. It's a great movie. But Aliens, I actually saw Aliens before I saw Alien when I was a kid. Same. Um, I've loved Aliens forever. So we're going to do that next and you'll get to hear me full on fillet that movie. Um <laughs> But this is this is such an this is in my I, like, I know this is more than one film. This is you know multiple. We're doing five films here. Five is that five? Yeah, five. Six, films. six, six films. Six, six films. So this is much more than a, you know a two film series. But I would argue, and I'm not trying to get too off, too far off the subject here, Patrick. But I would argue that Alien and Aliens may be the greatest one two punch in movie history. You know what I mean? Like I know this is not a trilogy, so you can't really compare it to let's say Star Wars or right. um, you know other film. One like just in terms of two films, Alien and Aliens may be the greatest one-two punch ever in films. It really is, and I, the only other great one-two punch I can think of is is also involves James Cameron, which is Terminator and Terminator Two. The difference is, I think, as much as I love both of those movies very much, like there's they have a kind of a dated feel to them. Like they're, they're kind of, and I, something I totally respect. Again, we're talking about all of our beloved children here. Dame and I are not going to choose between them, (sighs) but like, you know, the fit and finish of alien and aliens is I think unmatched. These are, these are beautiful films, like beautifully made films. And I think 
for for all the years when I just kind of like licked the screen as I watched Alien <laughs> and Aliens, um, I, I I didn't you know like it took me a long time to kind of mature into why I like films on a much deeper level. But on the on the base level, Alien was perfect when I looked at it. I was like, there's nothing out of place here. And there's very they're very simple techniques. Um, Ridley Scott has a has a background in production design and art. He he has, he has an art degree. Um, he he specializes in production design. You know another director who specializes in production design, Robert Eggers, <laughs> doesn't really miss. So he's a guy that doesn't really miss, right? And it seems that you know he he may have picked that up somewhere along the line from Ridley Scott because Ridley Scott knew what to do with what he had. Now he claims that this was a budget of eight million. It's officially, you know, on on different. It always fluctuates, but on most sites, they it says it hovers around eleven to fourteen million. Ridley says it was eight or eight and a half. What he could do with eight and a half million dollars looked like a Star Wars film, and there's no doubt that he took a lot of inspiration from Star Wars, which came out a few years prior, to go look at sci-fi in a in a way that it's so lived in. That was the that was the thing about Star Wars that I think blew people's minds because before that you had tons of sci-fi, but it was always super stark and sleek and clean. Like they just imagined this 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 outer world that was so kind of perfect. And when Star Wars came around, well, Star Wars was anything but perfect. Everything in there, everything in that world was dirty and well lived in. It was a well-established world, and a smart, very talented director like Ridley Scott goes, I can do that. I, like that, that I resonate with as a production designer in his mind, he's going, yes, this world looks completely lived in. There's a, there's a long backstory without, without ever having to tell anything to anyone. You could, the world tells you so much. And another movie a few years before Star Wars put a bug in his ear. That movie, Damon, a little something you called Texas Chainsaw Massacre. He sees this and he goes, now that I understand. And these and this and the coalescence of these two very good movies, by the way, Star Wars, the original Star Wars and Texas Chainsaw, some of the best movies you'll ever watch. Ridley Scott goes, I see something here like I, I can do something with this. And then Dan O'Bannon's script finally comes his way after many directors pass on it because it, it, Dan O'Bannon, we, we'll get to that in a, in a moment here. Dan O'Bannon's script was kind of wild. It was kind of weird. And it, I think it took a weirdo to actually go, I can tackle that. And that was Ridley Scott. He said, we can do this. We can make this weird sci-fi movie. I'm going to make it feel super lived in. And I think he told one of the producers or someone, I can't remember who it was, but he goes, we're going to make this very, very, very simple boiled down story. And we're going to make it look as good as 2001, a space odyssey, which was the gold standard of sci-fi films. And they went, I believe this guy, I believe we believe Ridley Scott can do it. And Damon, they fucking did it. I mean, that this movie, Damon, when you just look upon it, forget about what well, we're going to get into all the the, the emotional and, and, and socio commentary and all that stuff on this movie. But just on its face, it's a perfect movie. Yeah. And you mentioned influences. We got to mention I mentioned in the intro, of course, 2001 A Space Odyssey is definitely a huge influence on this movie. And. Ridley Scott, again, you got to remember how this all came together. As I mentioned, I, I don't want to go back to the intro, but again, Ridley Scott was not the first choice. He was not, you know, they had gone to a lot of different directors before yeah, they he was landed like on six. I think. Yeah, he was way down the list on people they were seeking out. Dan O'Bannon finding uh, Ronald Shusett and working together. For those who don't know, uh, Suset went on. Actually, they were they both had two different scripts that they were working on. 
And Shusette came up with a, a, a part of the original story for Alien. He worked on it with Dan O'Bannon, and that's where the script came from. He went on his original script that he was working on at the same time that he went back two years later ended up becoming Total Recall, another science fiction classic starring Arnold Schwarzenegger. So these are two titans of the filmmaking industry, the screenwriting industry, coming together. And just like I mentioned in the intro, Dan O'Bannon's first film was working with John freaking Carpenter. So you talk about all the moving pieces to come together to this, and then, you know, this film, and I mentioned it, but I want to say it again here, this film doesn't happen without Star Wars. If Star yeah. Wars doesn't come out in 1977 and become a massive global hit, nobody was it. Fox passed on Alien. They had this mm-hmm. script, and Fox said, nah, we're not interested. Star Wars comes out, becomes a massive blockbuster, and they're like, oh, whoa, whoa, whoa. we need more sci-fi. Where's that Alien? Where's that Alien script? And a year later, they greenlight it and give him the money, and they bring in Ridley Scott, and they make the freaking movie that comes out in 1979, so two years after Star Wars. Star Wars, if George Lucas and Star Wars doesn't happen, Alien does not exist. Like, that's been clearly, Ridley Scott said that, everyone has said that. If that doesn't happen, Alien is not a film, which is insane to me considering how good this movie is. There were rewrites and script rewrites and changes, and and I know Dan O'Bannon got angry at some of the changes they wanted to make to his original script, but there were a lot of, and one of the biggest ones, which the way he wrote it, said that it was, you know, they were not like every, so to be clear, every character in the original script of Alien was, every crew member was male. But he actually writ, wrote in the script, all characters are gender fluid, meaning they could be women or men. You don't have to write them as men, but every character was a man. It was only when Ridley Scott came on board, he's the one who decided Ripley should be a woman. Lambert yeah. should be a woman. He's the one who made those changes. So again, these little things that make all the difference with this film, because if you just, if you just do it as is this, the original script was different than what actually ends up on screen, which is, you know, that's fairly common. Yeah. But the idea that the original script was all men, we don't get Sigourney Weaver. If Ridley Scott is not the director who says, you know what? I want to add some women to this story and I want to make a woman the lead. I want to make a female heroine. We don't get Sigourney Weaver, we don't get Ripley, one of the greatest iconic science fiction heroes of all time, if if anyone else directs this movie. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's just, it's 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 the perfect storm to come together and even get this thing to happen, and then to actually go in and make it, and again, it's a labor of love, because there's so many, like, if you just go to the Wikipedia page, there's like 10 sections of what they had to do to make this movie, all the sets they had to build, the miniatures they built. The, the alien creature itself designed by the artist H.R. Geiger, which is famously well known, finding randomly running into in a London pub, a six foot ten basketball player who is looking not an actor, not no one. You know, they couldn't find him. They're like, you know what? This guy looks like he could fit in that alien costume we're talking about. So there is actually a person in the alien costume. It's a six foot ten guy. They just randomly picked out of a pub in London. <laughs> all these little things like it just sounds ridiculous like this sounds like a movie about making a movie like this sounds like something that you would see in hollywood like let's make a movie about making a movie and there's all these real twists and turns and things that don't happen and casting and this is actually what happened to make alien and this is all the great movies have this story i think where it's like it gets passed to so many different hands 
uh, the story changes so dramatically. I mean, the, 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 the history behind Star Wars and how dramatically that actually changed from from script to screen. Um, th- this is this is how it goes. I think it was like Seth Rogen said something like, like it's a miracle that any big movie ever gets made because of how much how many variables are in place. But when the variables come together, the right director, the right cast, which Ridley Scott calls this cast the greatest ensemble he's ever worked with. This is this is very early in his career. He's had a storied career and he says the greatest ensemble I've ever worked with. He said that just a few years ago. The best cast, the best production designers. It all comes together to to create what is really interestingly, Damon, um, this movie for about the first 45 minutes is a is is a discovery movie. It is a movie about people who who, you know, answer a distress signal, go to an alien planet, come across an, a, a vacant ship. So they think come across what they can all they can tell is an alien life form. For the first 45 minutes of this movie, you don't have uh, any sort of horror. What you have is dread. What you have is a sense and an atmosphere. It's building. Things, it's building. They're just building. And it's like it may be like one of my favorite slow burn movies of all time because it doesn't feel slow at all. Like and and I think why it doesn't feel slow is because of all the perfect little elements that are in line. The fact that you can your eyes can dart to any corner of of the screen and see something amazing, you know, and and this the sets were built like out of old uh, aircraft parts. They would they would repurpose aircraft parts, paint them, invert them, change them a different way to just make them look uh, you know, different, uh, you know, things like, how about this curved corridors? Dan O'Bannon claims that that was his idea. Dan O'Bannon claims like he was looking at the set and said, there's not enough curved corridors. Like, how are we going to be able to look around a corner? Curved corridors are expensive, right? So they, they built those out. So the idea that you could, you, you would have to, you'd have blind corners to actually create a sense of horror. Yeah. So, so all the way through the first half of this movie, it's drenched in an atmosphere that is undeniably uncomfortable. The, the, the interactions between the crew members, there's uh, there, I think it's six crew members, if I'm not mistaken, seven, 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 it's seven crew members. Is it seven? Is it it one, two, three, four, five, six? Yeah. Seven. Yeah. Seven crew members, seven crew members. There's a, there's a, uh, there's a class system on this, on the ship, Parker and Brett, they're grunt workers. They're engineers. They work below decks. Then there's the, the there's this then there's the science officers. Then there's the captains. There's this there's the hierarchy right away, and there and it and it's over very like um like like it's over very simple dialogue where they're talking about their shares right. Parker and Brett are kind of complaining that they're not getting full shares, and the captain just kind of dismisses them and goes, "You get the shares you agree to get." Well, they're clear and they're clearly like, "Hey, you know, we do we do more work. We deserve more money." Like. Like there's that level of tension, and, and, which was like, it really stood out to me this time watching it. I was like, oh, they're, they're, they're developing that like nothing is quite comfortable here. There's a lot of sexual tension, <laughs> which is really weird. And it's very, very, very subtle, but it was baked in this movie, by the way, uh, I think I texted this to you. They wanted to make this movie way more horny than it came out. <laughs> 
It's funny uh, you say. It's funny you say. I was rewatching, so I re. I've seen this movie a million times, but yeah. I rewatched it right. But yeah, I rewatched it two nights ago, and then I rewatched parts of it right before we recorded. And I wanted to rewatch the uh, chest burster scene, which I know we're going to talk about at nauseum. But I want to mention, like right before that, when they sit down to dinner and Kane is piling food onto his plate, and Parker says the horny line when he says, "I wish I was eating something else," looking right at Lambert, and she laughs, and I'm like, "Wow, they really were making this a super yeah. horny space movie." Their intention, which I thought was so interesting, their intention was that anybody on this ship, the protocol for the ship was you could have sex with anybody you wanted, that it was not a big deal to have sex with anybody. on. I'm talking man, woman, man, man, woman, woman. And and really, Scott said, if I'd made this today, like it would be that would be very clear. But back then, you know, you're talking 1979, that, that was a far off idea. Yeah. But it was baked into the script. It was baked into the idea that like the all these people had probably had sex with each other multiple, multiple times because <sighs> they've been at, out in deep space for years. So their interactions are 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 uh, uh, they, they're they're influenced by that. The fact that they've all probably had sex with each other at some <laughs> some point or another. Um, like later on in the script, when, um, when, when Dallas gets killed or taken by the alien, uh, you know, Lambert is like, she's a wreck because she's broken protocol, which is you don't fall in love with anybody on the ship. You can fuck anybody you want, (laughs) but you don't fall in love with them. But she had fallen in love with Dallas. And apparently they even shot some scenes with her and Dallas that they just never, that never made it to, to the screen ever, not even in a director's cut or anything. Um, but they, they decided that it was just taking away from what they were trying to do, which was kind of create this movie that just ratchets the tension slowly up. And, and it, by the end, it basically becomes like a chase movie. You know, there's there's a monster in the house. How, how do I get out before it eats me? Because I got no way to beat it. But like. It, and it, <laughs> forgive me if I'm all over the place, but it, it just it strikes me so well, me- crazy when I go back to Texas Chainsaw Massacre and how it influenced Ridley Scott. What do you and I say when we talk about Texas Chainsaw Massacre is that it feels very real. Yeah. It feels almost like a documentary. And I'm noticing, and I watched this twice. I managed to get two viewings in before we recorded this podcast, how real and authentic the interactions are on the ship. I don't feel like I'm watching actors. Nobody feels like they're acting. Everything feels raw. The arguments feel raw. When they blow up at each other, it feels like people really blowing up at each other, that they've been locked in a spaceship together for 10 years or however long it's been. You get that sense of realism and it sort of gets right under your skin and it won't go away. So let me backtrack two things I want to mention here. One thing I want to slightly disagree with you on that I actually really appreciate about this movie. And I, I know what you're saying and I'm not I'm not saying you're wrong. I'm just disagreeing slightly and just in this sense. Because I, I looked at Alien through the lens of a movie fan. I also looked at it, as as we always talk about, with that critical eye. But I also looked about it when it came out at the time in 1979. And a lot of times when we review older horror films, and we did this when we talked about The Exorcist and some other films we reviewed, The Omen, movies we reviewed from like the 70s, how those movies had a lot more patience and, and everything was kind of a slow burn. Some of it is out of necessity because... Yeah. You know, the alien in this movie, while it was a, a feat of, uh, you know, practical effects and engineering, it's still they had to hide certain things and hide in the shadows because oh, yeah. it's still just a guy in a suit. You know what I mean? Ultimately, it is. So they had to, like, you know, make it look different and hide it in the shadows and all those little things, you know, wet everything down and all those kind of things they had to do to make it more look more real. So you didn't see it's a guy in a suit. 
But one thing you said there that I actually appreciate that they didn't do was you said it's like you know there's a lot of like the the, the running from the alien. They actually don't really do that a lot in this movie because what they actually do is the 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 scene where Ripley is trying to prepare the escape pod to get off the Nostromo. She's dropping down ladders and climbing through corridors and walking down hallways, and we never see the alien. But mm-hmm. just the creeping sense of dread is there, that we know it could be there. That is the feat of genius of this movie, is that we only see the alien in very sparse moments. And when you say chasing the alien, what they actually don't do is there actually isn't a chase scene. There's not really a scene where the alien's marching after Ripley in the, in the well, ship. I meant them chasing the alien, because yeah, yeah. that's kind of what they're starting yeah, to do, so, to kind of like corner it. And that's I what love, I meant. Yeah, and I love that they don't do that, though. That they're just like, the, you, feel, you feel the tension that it could be around any corner, that it could come at you in any direction. But the fact that we're not getting these big drawn out action sequences where Ripley is running through the ship and climbing down. Now, obviously, they do that in Aliens, but that was eight years later, seven years later. They had a lot more to work with at that point. And James Cameron, of course, is just a master of, you know, of of effects. And we've seen his, you know, we saw what he did with Terminator, what he did with Aliens and eventually with Terminator 2. He, He changed the he changed the effects game. Okay, we all know James Cameron did that. Certainly not saying Ridley Scott's not great. He is incredible, but I'm saying James Cameron just had something different to work with, and that was a totally different movie when he made Aliens. Alien, that's part of the genius, though, is that we don't have these big extended chase sequences through the ship to where it's like this alien's chasing Ripley and it's chasing Parker, and it's not that. I appreciate that. The other thing I want to mention that you talked about earlier with the slow burn of it, we don't get to the chest burster scene until like an hour in. Yeah. Now, I know I say this all the time, and people who listen to this podcast probably like, dude, you say this constantly, but I'm being honest. You cannot make Alien in 2023. Audiences will be bored out of their asses because, like, why isn't more happening 20 minutes into the You have to have the chestburster scene 10 minutes into the movie. There's no patience for this in this day and age. Like, we need things to happen now. The fact that you have to get, like, an hour in to get to the kind of exciting incident where the alien actually appeared, the real alien actually appears, is wild. It takes that long, but you never feel like it's that long. You never feel like they're just dragging time. From the moment they wake up on the ship and you realize that they're answering a distress call when they were on their way back home to Earth, and they answered this distress call, and the ship basically took them to this planet where they were supposed to answer a distress call, that's already ominous. Then you go down onto the planet's surface and the landing of the ship kind of crashes and everything kind of breaks and they're kind of freaking out. They might be stuck there. That's ominous. Then they get out of the ship and they go down into this weird other giant spaceship and they drop down in there and they see this alien creature with its chest burst open, but it's burst open from the inside out. And that's ominous. Kane drops down into the corridor and he sees this layer of fog covering these egg things and that's ominous which by the way thank you to uh Robert, was it uh uh what's his name uh, daltrey from the who uh, uh roger it was his lasers from his show they, they loaned it to uh, they loaned it to ridley scott for this movie yeah um he goes down there see these eggs that's ominous Kane drops down to see him and you shines the light and you see the little movement inside, which by the way is Ridley Scott's hand for those of you that don't know. That's actually Ridley Scott's hand inside the egg moving around. That's ominous. It flips open. Look down into it. That's ominous. The creature comes out, obviously big scare. All these moments are ominous and foreboding. And as you talk about the sense of dread, 
But really, until the face hugger comes out, we don't really have like a super, we don't have any like action sequences. We don't have any big set moments of like, you know, running or, or we're scared or any of this. And my honestly, I think my favorite moment in Alien, to be honest with you, the moment when I was like, I love this movie. And this is like on my like 10th rewatch somewhere, you know, years ago was when Kane and Lambert and Dallas are down in the alien ship and they're talking like, you know, they're finding this corridor and, and you know, they're lowering Kane down into the, into the column. He's looking at the eggs and up in the ship, up in the Nostromo, Ripley says, Ash, I've decoded the message. It's not a distress signal. It's a warning. And she's like, he's like, yes. And he's like, I, I should go down and tell him. He's like, and for what for? What, what, why? Like, they're going to be back soon. Why bother? Like, why bother doing it? But her yeah. figuring out that it wasn't a distress signal, it was a warning to stay away. And then at the same time, Kane drops down in that chamber and you see those eggs. In my head, I'm like, oh shit, this is going to go bad. And obviously the whole premise of the movie is it's going bad, but that's where you realize they're in serious trouble. And I love that scene so much when she decodes the message tells ash and he's like oh no 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 it's gonna take too long to go out and tell them just you know wait for the wait till they're back and at the same time kane's dropping down there and finding those eggs you know shit is about to hit the fan yeah i mean uh, i this time around you know the idea of of ash being the uh the agent provocateur of the bunch was so much more prominent like now you know like obviously i've known for years yeah he's the bad guy but like seeing all the little seeds they plant along the way. Um, and that was that to me, that was the definitive scene where she goes, it's a warning. And he goes, it's what's the point? We're already there. Like, it's not going to change anything. They're 6,000 meters away. Like we can't tell them it's a warning. It doesn't matter. They're already there. We'll tell them it's a warning when they get back. It's, it's, it's a, it's a foreshadowing of all the hell that is about to break loose. It's fantastic. I will disagree. I think, I think modern audiences can, um, can deal with a slow burn like this where you don't see the thing you came to see for about 45 minutes in the movie. It's that major studios and major IP won't do that anymore. Well, even yeah, alien, yeah. even the alien franchise at this point wouldn't do that anymore, but as something brand new, which alien totally was in 1979. I do think you can get away with it. Well, I think it's, I think it's more of the blockbuster model is what I'm getting. Yeah. That's at. what like I mean. You, yeah, like the, the blockbuster like established model, IP. You can't. Yeah. The blockbuster model just doesn't work in this day and age to make this kind of a big budget movie. What would be a big, you know, in 2023 would be a big budget movie. Yeah, it's a hundred million dollar movie. Yeah, they today. wouldn't. They wouldn't. They wouldn't allow. They like, hold on now. We gotta have. We gotta see this alien twenty minutes in. We can't wait forty five minutes. Like no. And so that's where I'm getting at. Like it's just again, the way films were made in those days and the patience that studios and filmmakers had, to me was better than what we typically get today. And let and again, there are exceptions to the rule when you get uh, a, you know you get a Martin Scorsese or a Quentin Tarantino who has carte blanche to do whatever the fuck they want yeah. and you can get a three and a half hour movie like Killers of the Flower Moon because the studio is like you're Martin Scorsese you can do whatever the fuck you want and if you want to make a three and a half hour epic we're going to let you make a three and a half hour epic at it, its cuts fuck no you do whatever you want buddy 
you know, just roll out the Oscars. And Quentin's the same way. There's a few guys like that. I think, you know, uh, Denny yeah. Villeneuve has kind of done that with, with the Dune movies and, and his track record of making big <laughs> Yeah, epics. Dune 1 is basically just the first, the one and a half acts of Dune. It's not yeah. even like the full movie. Yeah, and Dune, of course, is, you know, and it's funny, Dune is the inspiration for Star Wars because when you watch Dune, you realize right. how much Star Wars ripped off from Dune. Uh, oh, my God, like everything. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I mean, yeah, no, yeah, and I guess that's all I'm getting at. It's like, I'm just saying, like, it, and I'm not even saying audiences necessarily. I just think that the studios, I guess is a better way to say it. They would just, in this day and age, they'd be like, hold on now. Why aren't we seeing this alien pop out of that guy's chest 20 minutes in? That's no, no, no. We got to see it sooner. I guess my point is like original work is given that kind of grace. Sometimes. And so at, Sometimes. at the time, <laughs> Alien and Star Wars, these were all things that were like brand new. You yeah. know, it's a sci-fi at a, at a blockbuster. Even the blockbuster was new in the 70s. It was a new thing. It didn't come from, Blockbuster was a term that came out for Jaws. Um, so it was, it was just new that's, territory. And that's 1975. Yeah. That's four years before this. Yeah. So, mm. you know, it was, it was all just new territory. And so, you know, uh, the, the grace was given because it was completely new territory. They were just like, do whatever you want. Cause we've never seen anything like this. Yeah. And then Damon, you talk about, you know, this, this wonderful buildup that is all very simple, by the way, character development. I don't know anything about these characters. And that was apparently very intentional. Like, think about it. What do you know about any of them? What do you know about any of their histories? You don't. You just know their interactions in the moment. Like, it's so uh, visceral. And I and I think um, Ridley Scott talked about this too. Uh, you know, there, there's so many like tab like sci-fi taboos in this movie, which are like, oh, that that's not how a spaceship works, or that's not how this would work, or that's not how that would work. And he goes, I had to say fuck it to all of that shit, and I had to go for the visceral. I chose visceral over factual and guess what? It worked. Like it totally worked. Like I, I, I was listening to um, Tim Heidecker's podcast the other day and he goes, there's a problem with like modern audiences. Now, now here we are old guys bitching about modern stuff. Now it's my turn. <laughs> modern audiences insist on literal literality. Like it needs to be literal. And I, I mean, sometimes we find ourselves doing it on this podcast, but we kind of forgive it. We kind of laugh it off, but Modern audiences don't forgive things that need to literally happen. Uh, I'm sorry, that dinosaur would not look like that. It's like, we don't have dinosaurs. Like, they're, they're, dinosaurs don't exist anymore. So don't worry about, it doesn't need to be literal. Let go. It's like uh, it's like Neil, it's like Neil deGrasse Tyson debunking sci-fi movies, which I I do find funny and funny. enjoy. But yeah. but yeah, like you have to, sometimes you have to suspend disbelief and just like enjoy a sci-fi. Yeah, yeah. Like it's a sci-fi movie. Yeah, and Rid Ridley was of of the of this of this cloth that just said like, go for the gut, like go for the gut. Don't worry about literal. Don't worry about like how gravity works on this thing. Don't worry about condensation and and like all this other shit. Don't worry about it. I need you to feel it, and everything in this movie, from the environments to the acting to the to the violence, it's all visceral. Every last bit of it is visceral. It feels real. And I, I fucking, I, I adore it. I adore it because I don't think that I don't think we're going to be doing a lot of nowadays. I think nowadays we kind of have to be literal in our storytelling, or if you do, or if you do go off the path, you need to be very good at setting up your world, which by the way, alien, very good at setting up its world. It's hilarious. You talk about the, uh, the rain because I had read a story with Ridley Scott where they talked about the scene where Brett goes down. He's looking for the, he's looking for Jonesy yeah. 
and he stands underneath this thing, and the rain comes down on his face, and he lets it you know drip into his mouth, and he's just kind of like enjoying it. And then the alien drops down and attacks him. And a producer or one of the studio people asked him, like, why the fuck is there rain in a ship? And he's like, I don't fucking know. It's condensation, whatever. It looks cool. Like, that's what I wanted. I wanted him to have, like, that reaction and seeing the alien all drop down all wet and gross and drop down and kill him. He's like, I don't care why it's raining in there. I love that. Like, he's just like, it's con. Fuck it. It's condensation, whatever. I don't care. He said, he, he goes, he goes, there's a malfunction and there's condensation in the room. And they go, well, the chains that are swinging wouldn't do that. And he goes, shut the fuck up. <laughs> yeah. the, the reason the chains are swinging, he goes, is the room looks too static. Again, yeah. production design. He understood the production design of the room and went, the room looks too stark and I need something in it to break it up. So he has those chains swinging. And then and then you hear the, the little clink of the chains. That adds to that classic dread, like very classic horror, very hammer, the hammer house horror, this idea of just chains rattling. But it does something else. And I'm sure, you know, I'm sure he's talked about it somewhere. But the design of this ship, once the alien is revealed, and I think we'll start really getting into that in a minute here. But once the alien's revealed and you finally see its form when it attacks uh, Brett in that in that in that boiler room, um, the design of the ship makes you never trust the ship again because the alien kind of looks like the ship. And the first sign of it is those chains that are swinging because the tail comes down and it mimics the chains. So you were seeing chains in the room and then all of a sudden that tail comes down and all of a sudden this form comes down and you see it and it's long and it's sleek and it it, it feels like some of the walls and some of the piping. All of a sudden, like you can't trust it. You're in a, now you're in a jungle and the, the predator that's after you is perfectly designed to blend into that jungle. So from that point on, from the death of Brett, you can never trust the ship. The ship becomes part of the problem. It's fucking brilliant. Like that is such a fucking brilliant move. I yeah. like it. Just it. It struck me so hard. I was like, God damn! Like every every corner looks like the alien. You don't know if you're seeing it or not. So fucking good. Well, I think that also speaks to what I was talking about earlier, where there are those no big extended chase sequences because it's just as they're going through the ship trying to escape or going through the ship looking for the alien. There's no Dallas running from the alien. There's no Ripley running from the alien. It's because well, obviously, again, as I mentioned, they couldn't do that for you know the look of the alien. They couldn't just have that you know, a, a ten, six foot ten dude running through the ship. It would look really bad. But the fact that you could look around every corner and you see the alien because the way the ship's designed that made it dreadful. That made it suspenseful without having to have these big extended three minute chase sequences through a ship where Ripley discovers the alien and then is chasing her through corridors and she's dumping down ladders and here comes the alien and oh my god like that's you know that's what a modern sci-fi movie does and and it can be done well I mean it absolutely can be done well but I appreciate the simplicity of this that there are no chase scenes like that in this movie and that's because as you talked about that the alien could be anywhere just like when she gets into that escape pod and that's the ultimate moment of like the the alien escaping into the background is when she's in the ship getting ready to take off and then the alien's arm pops out and she's like oh shit it's in here with me she didn't notice it i didn't no one noticed it you didn't no, notice it uh, landing can you imagine way. what that scare was like in 1979 <laughs> yeah i mean unbelievable so um let's we got to talk about this because this is the I, the most iconic scene in the entire movie and that is the chest burster scene i mean before yeah. we get there I do want to compliment the simplicity and originality of the face hugger. Yeah. 
because that is something totally different and totally new because that whole thing came from trying to create a device of how does the alien get on the ship and Dan O'Bannon and uh, is it Richard Suset or Ronald Suset? I'm forgetting his name. Is it uh, it's uh, Ronald, Ronald Suset? Right. Yeah, Ronald Suset. Ronald Suset was the one who said, "What if we impregnate one of the one of the crew members, and that's how it gets on board?" And they're like, "Oh shit, that's pretty good." Because they were trying to figure out how do we get this alien on the ship. They land on this alien planet. They discover the ship. They discover the eggs. All that stuff. But they didn't know how to get the alien on board without it just being an alien climbing on a ship. And that's where Ronald Shusett came up with the idea. What if we impregnate, like, what if we have it in, like, infects one of the crew members? And then, you know, of course, it evolves into the facehugger and they bring it on ship on the ship. And by the way, the effects and designs are genius. The scene where, you know, Ash and Dallas try to remove it. It tightens its grip around Kane's neck, and then when they cut it, of course, the acid pops out, and they're like, it's going to eat through the goddamn hole, and they're running around checking the find it's, it's got acid for blood, all that, and then the alien just disappears. It comes off his face and dies, falls on Ripley, freaks her out, but then they, you know, they touch it, very visceral, very real, looks real. They touch it, it kind of twitches, whatever, and Ash, you know, she's like, it's okay, it's okay, it's dead. They go to dinner. Everything seems all right. They're like, good, we're going to go in the freeze. He's like, I got to get something to eat first. Can I get something to eat before we go in the freeze? Like, no problem. I'm buying. They sit down to dinner. And everything's cool. Everything's fine. They're even making sex jokes, as I made earlier. He's like, I wish I was eating something else. And Lambert's like, ha, ha, ha. Like, you want to get something before dinner? Um, <laughs> before cryo? Yeah, before cryo. You know, we're gonna be, and also, well, you, know what, one thing I, you know what's hilarious? I've seen this movie you know, two dozen times. You know what number I never picked up on before this viewing this last time was when they were talking about her calculation to get home. She actually says it takes 10 months to get back to Earth. I never caught that before. I never caught her yeah. saying 10 months. I don't know if I just missed it or I just like glazed over me. But I watched yeah. it this time. I noticed. She said it takes 10 months to get back to Earth. Anyways, they're at dinner. They're eating this weird salad. We're looking weird shit. And, you know, they're all there. And then Kane starts, like, coughing. And and I love Yafet Koto, the late, great Yafet Koto. We lost him last year. Or is it earlier this year? Um, uh, part, last year, I'm sorry, two years ago. I can't remember how long ago it was. But Parker says there and he goes, it ain't that bad, baby. And then he just starts spitting up and falls over and starts twitching and screaming bloody murder. And what I love about this scene, yes, they had to shoot at multiple angles. You know, John Hurt was partially under the table. They had a double, all this kind of stuff. But the one thing that is well-documented, the the cast, Sigourney Weaver, Yafet Koto, all the Harry Dean Stanton, all of them, they had no idea what was actually going to happen. They knew an alien was going to emerge. It's not true. It's no, I true. read it. I read it in multiple places. I, every it's it's one of the greatest myths of this. And I was listening to the uh, the commentary with the crew. It is the greatest myth is that they had no idea what was going to come out of his chest. That, no, that's that, not, no, no, not, not that they not they didn't know what they knew how it was going to come out of his chest. That it was going to burst they, out the way they it knew did. it was going to burst out of him. They knew that's what they didn't know. And what that, I think what happened it was a game of telephone over the years. What they didn't know and what they actually filmed because this is the 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 legend goes as, as you're saying. They didn't know what was going to happen. And the reactions you see are real. That's we've heard. I've heard that my whole life. And I heard it from the actors directly in the commentary. They knew it was going to burst out of his chest. They were quite aware. What they didn't know is where the blood was going to go. 
And they were actually told, they're going, yeah, the blood's just going to kind of pool up around him. That's what the effects people actually hid from them, is that the blood was going to spray the fuck out of them. And it blasts Veronica Cartwright, <laughs> Lambert, and you hear her scream. And her reaction yeah. is, oh shit, a bunch of blood just hit my face. Yeah, and she, because she gets blasted with blood, and that's like where it's like, and she's like, oh, and like that is the real reaction. That's what I was, that's what I was getting at. It's like they're freaking yeah. out when the blood explodes all over them. But that scene is so insane when the chest just explodes the first time and this big burst of blood comes out from the bottom and you hear you and Kane is freaking out and convulsing and, 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 Oh, it's just wild. And then another punch and then it comes out. It is the wildest transformation and introduction of a creature ever in film history. It's yeah. genius. It is the most genius way to introduce an alien or any kind of like villainous creature that has ever been created in film history, in my opinion. It's it, it, there's no contest, Damon. And tell and, and I'm gonna, I'm going to ask you this now. You and I both saw Aliens before we ever saw Alien, right? But you and I, I guarantee you, Damon, when you were a kid, you knew about the chestburster scene. I did. Everybody knew about it. It it was like it was it wasn't just like film lore because when I'm six or seven, like I didn't know I didn't know there was even film lore, right? But I knew that an alien blew out of this guy's chest. I'd seen the scene myself somewhere, somehow <laughs> at a very young age. My, my kids like can't handle that level of gore. And like it's just bit burned into my brain since I'm a little child. Like it's one of the most iconic scenes in film history. And it's a horror scene. Like that's what I love. Like one of the one of the most iconic film scenes ever. Top five minimum. Is, is, is an alien exploding from a man's chest, covered in blood, covered in gore, leaving his friends and crew members just in utter shock and kicking off the, the second half of this, this, this most treacherous horror film. But like, you're right. Like, has it ever been better? And like, I love the little thing. It's like, you know, it's, it's animatronic, but it still looks so organic. I mean, it looks like a big fucking dick. Let's be honest. Like <laughs> Geiger was not subtle. He was a very sexual artist. Very phallic so, looking. Very phallic. Very phallic. Yeah. Lots of lots of fallacies. Even when they enter the ship, there's sort of a vaginal opening out of everything. Like like he's a he's a very organic artist in that respect. Like it's a big, bloody, throbbing, silver toothed cock, Damon. <laughs> <laughs> There's like no other way around it. Like, excuse my language, folks at home. If you've listened for a long time, you know how I talk. Like, it's like, holy shit. Like, it's not just like, oh, that's crazy. It's like, this might be the craziest thing well, and then it, then it stares you've up, ever seen. Then it stares up at them and goes. <laughs> yeah, and it roars at them and then it skitters off the table. You okay. know, and it just leaves them there in shock. Can I tell you my journey to this scene real quick? I have to tell this story because Aliens comes out in 86. I don't remember when I saw Aliens, but I know it wasn't when this came. I know it wasn't when it came out. It right. had to be a few years later because here's my journey to the chestburster scene. Not only had I seen Aliens before I saw Aliens, but I also saw a little film by the name of Spaceballs before I saw yep. Alien. And yep. in that film, you've seen Spaceballs, the great, uh, the great uh, Mel, Mel uh, Brooks. Mel Brooks, thank you. Uh, he parodied Star Wars mostly, but there was a great alien homage towards the end of the movie when Lone Star and Barf go sit at a diner and John Hurt is there and he's <laughs> eating the special and he starts coughing up and he slits down and he's like, so, what he says, says, the guy says, somebody get this guy some Pepto-Bismol. 
<laughs> and he yeah. goes boom, 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 and the alien bursts out, and John Hurt goes, "Not again!" And, oh, it, not comes, again. and it comes out, and then it grabs the hat, and the king goes, "Hello, my baby. Hello, yeah. my honey. Hello, my ragtime gal." <laughs> and then skitters off, and everyone's like. What the fuck? That was my first time seeing the chest burster scene was in Spaceballs when I was a kid. Because that was like 89, I think, when Spaceballs came out. Yeah. I saw Aliens. Then I understood it better. And then I saw Alien. And then I really understood it. So I actually saw Spaceballs first and had no context what it was. I thought it was like, I was like, what the fuck is this? Even as a kid, I was like, what is this? <laughs> And then I saw yeah, aliens, I and so I saw aliens, and I understood it. But then I saw alien, and I really understood it. So my journey actually went through spaceballs. Is how I saw the chestburster scene for the first time. <laughs> I don't know how, um, or how or when. I don't remember the first time ever seeing the chestburster scene. I know I definitely remember the spaceballs version, um, but I knew what it was referencing when I when I saw it. So I, I'd seen it somewhere. Again, my my older brother was big into horror, so I'm sure it was on the TV at one point, and I watched it. Yeah. Um, I just don't remember the exact moment that it happened, um, but I remember uh, somehow getting a hold of like a behind the scenes to Alien, which was really weird. Like I don't know if we had it. I don't know where it came from. But like, I, I used to watch the making of Alien a lot, maybe even more than I ever watched the movie. I, we just had it. I don't know why we had it or it was on HBO or something. I'm not sure. So I would pour over that. And, and that scene is just so fucking crazy, dude. It's still to this day just so crazy because of how well it was pulled off. And by the way, they only, I think they only shot one take of it and it only took them the morning to shoot. You know, you you would imagine normally for something that complicated and something that's put together in such an iconic way that it took them three days to get it right. They did it in one take in the morning. Yeah. And the whole inspiration for the chest burster scene was one of the writers, it was Dan O'Bannon or Ronald Shusett, had a condition. Uh, was it shingle? No, it was not shingles. What was the condition they had? They had a condition where it made it feel like they were they were burning on the inside. Something was trying to get out of them. I can't remember what the condition was. It's like an actual mm -hmm. condition. But that's what gave them the inspiration for the alien popping out inside the human, popping out to the outside. It was whatever their condition is, like some sort of indigestion. They always felt like their insides were trying to yeah. pop out. And that's what gave them the inspiration for an alien literally popping out of this dude's chest. And one of my favorite moments of that scene, while it is so like mind blowing. Like it is just, again, so calm, cool and collected. Kane is back. He's okay. The, the face hugger dropped off him. He seems fine. They're going to go back in the deep freeze and, and go home to earth. And then he starts choking and he spits and he falls over and convulses. And then when the alien pops out, one of my favorite little like moments in this is when the alien comes out and it's looking around, here's this giant, you know, cock with silver teeth as <laughs> looking around everyone. And in the background, you see John Hurt, his arms, fingers are twitching. Yeah. He's still he's still kind of alive, and he's just dying. It's like his death rattle. Yeah. I love that little detail in there where he's just like his fingers are flittering as the alien is sucking the last little bit of life out of this poor guy. And then it runs off, and everyone's like, <laughs> the, the best look, by the way. Obviously, Veronica Cartwright as Lambert, when she gets absolutely doused with blood, and she's like, oh, God, that's yeah. pretty good. Sigourney Weaver's reaction's pretty good, but the best reaction of all is Ian Holm as Ash. When his eyes are just wide, and he's like, <laughs> <laughs> he just watches it run away, and he's like, He's like, well, I didn't think it was going to go that poorly. <laughs> I actually love Brett's uh, Brett's reaction, which is, um, oh, God, why, why am I not thinking of his name Harry right Dean now? Harry Dean Stanton. Harry Dean Stanton. Harry Dean Stanton. 
he he's the only one if you notice who is like almost non-plus like he's just casually watching it he could have a cigarette hanging out of his mouth while he watches it and he explained in the commentary that he goes i can he goes guys i'm a good actor i can do a lot of things one thing i can't do is terrified i, I don't know how to do it i just can't do it so i in the moment i didn't play it that way yeah and i was like that's so funny but it it weirdly informed the character you're like looking around looking around all these terrified crew members and then there's one that's just kind of staring you're like he's seen some shit. <laughs> Like then, he, something in his life is certainly like got him to the point where this is not a big deal. And then Parker grabs a spork and he's ready to stab the thing. And Ash is like, don't touch it. Don't touch it. And then it runs off. And then Ash does the, <laughs> but it's just like, Parker's like, let's kill it. Like, you yeah. know, it's just that, that is like, we talk about this being the perfect movie. That is the perfect scene. Like that is yeah. just, I've seen that scene. A th- I feel like a thousand times I've watched it separately from the movie itself. Just watched it on YouTube or when it's popped up on cable or whatever it is. And it never gets old. Every single time I watch it, I pick up something new that I didn't see before that I enjoy. Like I said, I've seen this movie two dozen times. I just picked up on the ultra horniness of that scene when, when Parker's like, I wish I was eating something else looking right at uh lambert she's like ha 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 like you're like oh jesus like you're just full on like you want to get some right now baby uh i didn't pick up on that i I was gonna say i didn't really pick up on that till just recently (laughs) have you ever seen the documentary memory uh no i know because i know that was the original movie that was uh that that, um uh dan o'bannon was writing yeah and, and dan uh, o'bannon i mean if we talk about any little element in this movie dan o'bannon takes credit for all of it except for the ash storyline which he complained about and actually hated but memory is a great uh, documentary on uh the original script and it's I, it's on shutter right now i think hey, yeah shutter. i know what you're talking about yeah yeah, yeah. Hey, shutter yeah it's it's a pretty interesting documentary and i bring that up because you talk about how horny that <laughs> this crew tends to be this movie was supposed to be way 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 more sexual way more and the studio kind of pulled all that stuff out of it uh much to dan o'bannon's chagrin like he really he he fancied himself he wanted to be the director of the movie ultimately you know, i think it would have been a very different movie i can't imagine dan o'bannon being that sexualized when i see return of the living dead and you see trash just jump up on a gravesite stripped down naked and dance in the rain i just i i can't imagine it'd be the same thing here i don't know <laughs> I think it would have been a completely different movie. We might not even be talking about it right now. Uh, but but truth be told, like it was a very sexual movie. Um, and and there were things like um, some really disturbing things. So the original way Lambert dies. Now, they, they sort of imply it a little bit in her death scene that you see the tail come up between her legs. By the way, that's not her legs. That's Harry Dean Stanton's legs. That's not even her pants. They just repurposed a scene from him. That happened to him. The implication was the alien didn't just take Brett. He violated Brett, took him and did stuff. The alien, it's, there's no, there's no, um, it's not a coincidence that when it opens its mouth, this like other mouth comes out of it. That looks very fistual, (laughs) if you will. This movie was about rape, which is we're really weird. Like the, the, the Dan O'Bannon version of it was just about violation. And the the original Lambert scene, he doesn't kill Lambert. The alien doesn't kill Lambert. He assaults her and she dies of a heart attack, which is fucking dark as shit. Yeah. Like really dark. Like she doesn't die from the alien attack. The alien violates her. She crawls away and dies in a locker. That's how she originally died. And I was like, I'm really glad they didn't do that. <laughs> like that's fucking awful. Um, 
that's how this movie was supposed to go the whole way down the line um we'll get into the fourth act here in a minute but you know very famously the end of this movie is is sigourney weaver stripping down to underwear and and getting into um the spacesuit it, it all felt like i think everybody was like this is oddly sexual <laughs> because it was supposed to be yeah. the alien was supposed to actually stalk her down and like get turned on by looking at her and like and try to like be with her like it this there was so much of this movie was supposed to be about sexual violation so and that, i'm really glad that they kind of they ironed a lot of that out is that what is that what inspired species then i imagine because i just watched species again recently and i love that movie natasha hinstridge um yeah. michael madsen that is the horny alien story that is the story of the alien basically boning everyone and wanting to bone everyone um I, apparently they got the inspiration from that because that's what that movie is is literally an alien screwing everybody yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's what it was supposed to be in this movie, too. So it's like you're like, geez, that's crazy that they were going to go that hard with it. But some of those elements still exist. Obviously, the design, I think the design of the alien is very phallic and that and that's totally done on purpose. And uh, and when in Dan O'Bannon's mind, it was an all male crew. That whole male crew was going to be violated originally. That's how that was supposed to go. Um, so yeah, a couple of, uh, pr producer and studio notes changed a lot of that stuff. And you know, I'm, I'm the writer here. Like I, you know, I, I, I always like to do a deep dive on the story itself. Now I'm a little sad. I didn't know all those details cause I haven't seen that documentary and I'm going to run and go watch it. But, um, I will say this and I, cause again, one of the reasons why Quentin Tarantino is my favorite filmmaker is because he's a great writer and director and, Tarantino always has a very singular vision of what he wants in his movies. And while he does edit his movies, like I've read the original screenplay to Django Unchained and in Django Unchained, not to get too far off the subject here, we all know the scene where Dr. King Schultz and Django go up to the room and they meet Calvin Candy for the first time. And they're talking about the Mandingo fighting. There's a scene that he wrote earlier than that, where you see Calvin Candy getting and winning uh, Django's wife, uh, uh Broomhilda in a in a card game and it's a very weird like not weird it's just a just a very like visceral like just a very like dark scene of him winning a slave basically in a card game and it's in the script but ultimately Tarantino felt like it didn't fit didn't need to be in there and they just left it out and you, when you read any of Tarantino's scripts you can tell there's a lot of stuff he ends up leaving out but it's his vision so he's the one who's deciding what comes and what goes and I appreciate that about him because he has a vision for what he wants now I understand Films have to be cut down. Not everything's going to end up on the, you know, some stuff's going to end up on the cutting room floor. A three hour movie has to get cut down to two and a half hours. All those things. I totally understand that. This is one of those times where I'm glad there was intervention, <laughs> not only for that stuff you're talking about, but like the Ash idea, like mm -hmm. Ash being revealed as a, as a cyborg, as a humanoid, like a robot. And I know Dan O'Bannon hated that. Like he's like, why hated the fuck, it. why the fuck's he need to be a robot? Like what the fuck? Um, that is one of the best parts of the movie, the big reveal that Ash is a robot and he was basically on orders to retain the alien and fuck everybody else. There's literally when they when when Ripley goes in and finds the order from Mother and it says crew expendable, basically fuck everyone, save the alien. So now mm -hmm. you understand why Ash let in uh, Kane when the quarantine said he should have to stay outside for 24 hours, which obviously would have prevented the alien from ever getting in the ship in the first place, uh, quarantining him, all that kind of stuff. Um, you know, when the alien pops out of his chest, not trying to kill it. This was Ash protecting the company's most valuable asset and him being a, a, a robot 
made it that much better because you do at that point cut off all morality. You cut off all question of right or wrong. He is a robot who is just answering an order. You know what I mean? Like when you press a button on your computer, it turns on. The computer doesn't start talking to you and saying, do I really want to turn on or am I kind of tired right now? I don't feel like doing this. It's a computer. It just turns on because you press a button. That's what Ash is. He's a computer who listens and follows orders. He just happens to be a lot more humanoid about it. But the fact that he was a robot, that big reveal is unbelievable. And the film doesn't play the same if it's not that. Like it totally plays different if you just realize that he's just some asshole following bad orders and he doesn't have any morality or any connection to this crew he's been serving with or whatever, the fact that he's an Android answers every question you could ever have about the decisions he's been making this entire time. And that reveal is so iconic. It's right up there. It's like second in my mind to the chest burster scene. Well, maybe third because the face hugger is pretty shocking too. Yeah. But the revelation that Ash is an Android is like, I mean, it's a great reveal. So like as much as I always advocate for a writer's vision, this is one time where I'm like, I'm glad Ridley Scott made this change because to me, Ash is one of the best parts of this movie. Yeah, I believe it was Walter Hill that actually added Ash to the movie. Um, and Walter Dan Hill, and Walter Hill, for people who don't know, is an a, incredible director. Uh, he did Warriors. He's done a billion movies. He's still directing yeah. movies to this day. He's been out there forever. Um, I know Tarantino loves Walter Hill. Walter Hill was the producer on this movie. He's done a million things. So look up Walter Hill. You, you'll recognize a lot of his work. Yeah, yeah. Highly influential on this film. And Dan O'Bannon straight up hated the idea of Ash. Ash was not in the script. It was it was not a character that existed, um, but it, I think it's I think you're right. I think it was completely crucial to this movie. Um, it, it 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 created the sin because because a lot of a lot of uh, horror films are predicated on the sin. And what was the sin? Well, the sin here was greed. This company wanted this thing for their weapons division, and they were willing to sacrifice anybody to get it. And that created this whole other level of conflict and, and this and this fact that like nobody was going to come for them. No one was coming to help them. So they had that they had to act. It was after, you know, the ash reveal and the breakdown and everything that they finally decide just just fucking blow up the ship. We're, let, enough, enough. Let's let's get let's get into the escape pod, blow the ship to high hell. Let's get the fuck out of here. It, it really is what kicks off the final sequence of the movie is that reveal. The fact that like no one's coming for them. They were completely tools in in this process, in this in this company's process. And Ash as a character is revolutionary. I think it's it might be the first time that AI had really been done that way. Obviously, you had Hal, Hal nine thousand in um, in two thousand one, a Space Odyssey, but the the AI that at, or the 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 living android that Ash is is so much more reflective of what actual AI is today. Yeah, how scary it is. is. <laughs> it really is because Ash has emotion. Ash isn't just, he's not super cold, but there's these little hints, right? There's little things like when they're arguing about um, going to answer the distress signal, um, Parker's like, that's not, that, that's not my job. That's not my job description. And Ash could recite the contract by like by heart in his head robotically, because if you type into chat GPT, what's our contract say about you know distress, distress calls? Well, it says that if you ignore a distress call, you forfeit your entire share. 
Like, it, it's a, I mean, that's he's being an AI. Like, he can, he can compute all that shit in his head. But what the scary version of him is that he's AI completely unchained. And he's got emotion, but it's, it's emotion that is like, don't get in the way of the thing I need to do or you will make me mad. Yeah. And then there's the Dan O'Bannon side of it, which is the horny side. So <laughs> there's a scene that always, always, Damon, and correct me if, uh, if, it, if it didn't puzzle you when you were young, when Ash rolls up the nudie mag yeah. and stri- tries to stuff it in her face, were you were you not confused when you saw that as, as a kid? Yeah. Because like, what he, is he doing he exactly really, other than trying to choke her? He, because he, there's an answer. I'm just curious what you- He's what holding you, her down, and then he very deliberately, after he kind of knocks her out, he very deliberately, like, slowly winds up this magazine, and then he climb, climbs over top of her and starts jamming it down her throat. And my thought was in that moment, I was like, that's a weird fucking way to choose to kill somebody like that. Like you could just choke her to death or stab her or bludgeon her. But putting a magazine, I never. Yeah. When I saw I was like, why? That's a weird choice to make. So uh, I it's all it always baffled me. Like to this day, it baffled me. But I got my answer and it's not pretty. (laughs) So. Their, their their thought process was, well, uh, you know, this AI is, is highly uh, emotional in, in its own sense. It's kind of a runaway AI and it has desire just like any other uh, human would because and they said it, I think I think Scott Ridley Scott says it's like 30 percent human. So like there's there's like human part of him, not not unlike the uh, replicants in uh, Blade Runner. So he's got a little bit of human in him, too. But what he doesn't have are human parts, if you know what I mean. Um, even though I said silver tooth cock earlier, I'm, he doesn't have a dick. <laughs> and so in that moment, he was, he was violating her because he, he didn't have a fallacy, a phallus <laughs> to violate her with. He's a Ken doll. <laughs> He's totally a Ken doll. So he rolls that thing up and that, and he does that to her. Yeah. So that scene now disturbs the fuck out of me in a whole new way. Yeah, because that was their that was fully their intent in that in that it, as they designed it, it was it was puzzling to me for 30 years. And now I'm like, oh, that's why he did it. That's fucked up. That's if fucking you, dark. If you read people because I imagine that this, I mean, obviously, anyone who's going to listen to this podcast is going to have seen Alien. It's you know 40 years old at this point. But uh, go back. 50. Yeah. Go back and watch Alien again and start picking up on all the sexual references because even though I've seen this movie two dozen times, I picked up on more this last time because I did the whole critical eye thing where I was like, let me just pay a little closer attention to the dialogue, to the story, little intricacies here and there that I just, you know, again, it's, it's just an enjoyable movie. It became like a comfort movie. I could put it on the background and watch it and I didn't need to listen and, and watch every single second. Like I could check my phone for a text message and go right back into the movie and feel like I didn't miss anything because I've seen it two dozen times, but I just sat down there and watched it this time from start to finish without any interruptions anything like that and i started picking up on the little things that i just never noticed namely as i mentioned a couple times the parker scene with lambert but when you watch this film from that like i don't i don't want to turn this into like an erotic podcast but (laughs) like you realize how much like underlying sexual tension there is in this movie it's really odd when you start really examining this movie and like you because you texted me as you're watching this and you were doing the commentary and you're like man they really want to make this a horny movie <laughs> i was like yeah, they, i was it like was supposed to be way hornier yeah it's just funny that they did now there is years ago when alien was released in 1979 
It was a blockbuster, made a lot of money, and at the time, critics were kind of mixed on this movie. There were not a lot of positive reviews. You know, Siskel and Ebert were kind of mid. Siskel called it a haunted house movie just set on a spaceship, and they're all... Now, everyone re-examined this one. This is one of those films that got re-examined years later, and people started to appreciate it more. And I think it was in, was it 2003? They released a director's cut into theaters. Ridley Scott went back in recut the movie, but it's a different director's cut than what you would traditionally think of it. When you think of a director's cut, you think of, to go back to Star Wars, you think about what George Lucas did where he just kept changing shit. Like, he just kept adding in weird things and, you know, just kept messing with the original. And, I like, me personally, I just, like, just the 1977 Star Wars was perfect. Stop messing with it. Or you think of... 30 minutes of extra footage being just chunked in there, you know, extra right. scenes just being thrown in there. The director's cut for Alien is much different. And I, I want to mm-hmm. allow you to turn the table over to you to talk about the differences between Alien and the Alien, the director's cut, but also how different it is from a traditional quote unquote director's cut. Yeah. Well, first of all, it's shorter than the original <laughs> movie by a minute, I think. Right. Yeah. One I mean, minute. T- one, yeah. one minute shorter than the original theatrical version. Yeah. You you had the exact number. And that's funny. It's like I, I was sitting there watching the director's cut. I watched it first because, again, this is a movie I know back and forth. So I didn't need to, like, pine over it in the way I normally do. First, I watched it with the commentary, the, the standard uh, uh, theatrical cut. And then I sat and watched the rec- uh, director's cut. No commentary. And I thought to myself, this movie feels almost the same. It 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 was like cuts were tighter, things were sharper. Like it was just shit like that, and little things. But there are elements, there are new things, but they're so. I, I, how would I put it? Like they're almost like just a little extra uh, texture on some of the story beats that are so subtle you don't even notice it's a director's cut. There's one very obvious one. We'll talk about it at the end. But so I'll, I'll rifle off a few. One, they talk about the signal and the planet. And 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 there's a moment where Lambert's sitting there and they're they're like analyzing the planet. Um, and, and really the biggest thing I got out of that was they asked about the gravitational field. And she said it was like 0.86, I think implying it was 0.86 the gravity of Earth. And the one thing I picked up from that little scene that they left in was Ash going, Oh, you could walk on it. Ash is pushing them to go. He's saying, It's walkable. Let's go. You can go, you can, we can go research it. And I, that's the, the only little thing I really pulled from that scene where I was like, oh, that's critical was Ash saying that little line and that's it. And the scene's done. I mean, the scene was 30 seconds. Uh, there was another weird little tiny second, uh, which was when Kane is down there in the, in the, um, with all the eggs, he had a gun with him and he just puts the gun away before he goes to look in the thing. I mean, it's a split. I mean, it's five seconds of anything. So those are small ones. Here's one that I loved. So there's that great argument where they don't want to let um, uh, uh, Kane back in because he's got the face hugger on him and, and Ripley's like, absolutely not. You guys have to stay out. And then Ash overrides her. Well, when they're finally back in and Kane's in, in the, in the medical, medical bay and they're, they're kind of going, why don't you just freeze him? Why don't they're like kind of screaming about that. Lambert comes charging up and slaps the shit out of Ripley. I mean, fucking like just, just decks her with a slap and they start to get into a fight and they break that up. And I was like, why'd you do that? <laughs> like, why did they cut that out? This is so great. Like it felt, it just felt like it needed to be in the movie. Um, Brett's death is a little more drawn out. And then there's, um, there's a great puddle of like raining red blood where uh, Parker stands and it kind of rains on him and leaves this puddle of blood. It's a small one. Um, the big one, 
and this is one that I had been waiting for my whole life because I told you earlier I watched the behind the scenes, the making of Alien, my whole life, and I was waiting to see when she's finally trying to get out and she has to go. She has to go get Jonesy. Uh, which, by the way, another little cutscene, just a, a, a split second, the alien actually dips its head down and looks into the box at Jonesy. Um, she goes to get Jonesy, and she goes down this one, uh, this one to this one level, and she finds Dallas still alive, cocooned up, and uh, Brett is off on the other side, and his corpse is kind of like glued up to the wall with all that great alien design that you know it's it's made like a little den or a little nest in there. And Dallas is moaning in pain and he just asks her to kill him. And she hits him with the flamethrower and and lights up the room with flames. And then she runs off. And then the rest of the movie is, is how you would remember it. And that big scene, that big chunk, they had it fantastically restored. I think it was 2005. The weirdest thing was, I don't think that I needed that scene. Well, did you did you get to watch that scene fully restored? In, in the I did. Cut? I did. I rewatched that scene because when I, I did research on the director's cut, because we when we get to aliens uh which is like my alien there is a director's cut of that movie and there is a lot more in the director's cut of aliens and i actually prefer the director's cut to the theatrical version perfect honestly if i'm being honest um this one i looked up for because you told me you were watching the director's cut and i kind of forgot there was one so i went and looked it up because i was like oh let me see what the differences are so i could just look up those scenes if i don't have time to watch it because i was already watched the movie at that point i wanted to just have time to make sure i could watch those scenes and then I did the research and I was like, hold on, there's really not that like it's just little cuts like it's not, you know, there's this the scene where Ripley tells Ash, well, I have access to mother now. And like there's right. just like where she pulls out the little card and puts it back in and goes, no, they just cut out the card scene. Like it's just her going in the door, like little tiny cuts. And he takes out like Small five, stuff. six seconds. Like it was a Lambert's reaction off her saying that. That yeah. was like it was just minimal little things that got edited out. But that was the big one was the cocoon scene. And so I went and watched it's about four minutes long, four and a half minutes long. It is cool. It is cool to see because when you see aliens and you see all the people cocooned in aliens, it makes sense why that happens. And it makes a lot more sense why it happens based on that that missing scene. And Lambert or excuse me, uh, Dallas literally moaning, saying, kill me, kill me. And then, you know, she lights him up. It is cool. But I would agree. I don't think it's really necessary. I mean, you, you kind of already get the point that they're dead and what I like better, and again, not to get into the aliens conversation, when you get into aliens and you realize that these aliens are creating more aliens when they're nesting them and there's a queen alien like creating these eggs and the eggs are you know putting out more face huggers, the face huggers are attacking the people in the cocoons who will eventually birth more aliens. Like that's what the cocoons are for. It does. If, if you watch Aliens and see what the purpose of it is and then you go back and watch Alien, you'd be like, what's well, one alien? Is this a queen? Is it birthing eggs? Is that because you're cocooning it for no real reason at that point? You know what I mean? So the yeah. story makes more sense in Aliens to do it. So this one didn't make as much sense based on what we know happened seven years later. So in this regard, yeah, I would agree. I don't really need it. It's a cool scene because you get to see mm. Dallas one last time because when Dallas dies, when he's climbing through the air ducts and the alien just pops out, you see the hands pop out in the face and then you know he's just dead. Um, that's the last you see of Dallas in the movie. Revisiting that even momentarily where he's like, kill me. It is kind of cool, but I would agree. It's not totally necessary. It didn't add anything to the film. No, um, it's a cool uh, scene. The, the, it's a cool scene, but yeah. It's a cool scene, but it doesn't add anything. What I loved about the original version, which is um, w without that scene in it, is when 
you know, the, the great, the great, great air duct scene where the alien reaches out to him and then everything goes to black is the next thing is his, his flamethrower drops on the table and Parker just goes, no blood, no Dallas. Yeah. Scary. That's scary all in itself. I love that. And, and it's, it's stuck with me throughout the years. No blood, no Dallas. Like, it's just like, uh, okay, well, what the fuck happened to him? <sighs> this, this thing ran off with him. What is it going to do? Like the unknown of that. And All I think they the, say somewhere in the commentary, our minds come up with so much more nastiness than you could ever actually create. But the idea that it just took him and you'll never know what he did with him is fucking scary. All of the death scenes in this movie are kind of mysterious in a way. Like even yeah. like when he grabs Brett and when you see him, like the, the closest that we get really to like a close up death scene is Parker. When Parker's like yeah. literally battling the alien and trying to get Lambert out of there and you know, shoot but like that's the closest we see like to an actual death you know what i mean like where parker's right up close to the alien and you see the mouth come out and everything outside of that everything else is kind of you know you just see the alien you hear the scream and then it's over yeah. and you don't really know what happens and i agree your imagination can come up with something so much more awful than what we actually see and again the reality of it is we're dealing with 1979 graphics and effects and they didn't want to show too much and they couldn't show too much cuz again it's a guy in a suit and they wanted yeah. it to look like a humanoid creature, so they found the six foot ten guy. Going back to what we said at the beginning of the podcast, so they had to hide certain things. You know what I mean? So they had to make it in the shadows, and and you know you couldn't see everything. And like just like when we see the final scene with Ripley in the escape pod, and the alien is like literally just crushed back into the middle of the ship to get away, and his hand pops out. That's freaky and scary. But even in that, and then it starts to kind of crawl out and curl out from underneath the, the the side of the ship where it's hiding. Again, we see flashes of the alien, but we don't see its full form. We see the head. We see the mouth. We see the hands. And we see the tail. We see little bits and pieces, but they don't really show you the full six foot ten version outside of the full outside of the few months where you see the shadows of it you like when brett dies things like that yeah but yeah your imagination really takes over and it's that much more scary so again it's a cool little cutaway scene i'm glad i've seen it like it's cool to see that knowing what we get in aliens like the cocooning part but it's not necessary and uh you know again it's nice to see dallas one last time tom scare shout out but uh yeah you know, I don't really need it. I, when I read the director's cut thing and, and, you know, I, from my understanding, Ridley Scott was kind of resistant to it at first. Cause he's like, what, what am I changing? Like, I like the version right. I have. Um, and then I read about, then I read about, it's like one minute shorter. I was like, wow, you just went in and cut more shit out um, <laughs> and added a four minute scene. Um, so yeah, again, I don't think it's, it's, it's a much, it's a much different version of what is a quote unquote director's cut. The only thing I wish was in the theatrical cut was uh, Lambert slapping the shit out of Ripley and then yeah. getting in that little fight. It just it added to all those little moments that were boiling over before before they actually went and and uh, and, and got into the alien ship. Like they were all kind of pissed off at each other for little reasons. And it just it boiled over in that moment. And I liked that. It was a great like burst of tension to to have her slap her and they get in that quick tussle or whatever. And. You know that outside of that all the rest of these scenes don't they don't need to be in there but you know they they were they were nice little accents well and last one last thing i want to talk about real quick before we get to our categories and i know we've raved on multiple podcasts about how much we love sigourney weaver as ripley like that's one of the most iconic science fiction characters and heroines of all time one thing that i love more than anything about the way this film 
was produced and the script was written and Ripley became the lead character is that Ripley is always, I think for my memory, always the smartest one in the room. Mm-hmm. She's the one who says, Hey, you got an alien life form attached to your fucking face. You got to be quarantined for 24 hours. You're a danger. And even later when they learn, like, cause I know that scene you're talking about where, cause Parker was also disagreeing. He's like, Hey, you shouldn't have let it in. Like now we could all die. You yeah. know, you're a fucking idiot, Dallas. Like, you know, Ash, like you guys are going to get us all killed. And sure enough, that's what happens. She's the one who doesn't want to let the thing on board. She's the one who deciphers the distress call and realizes it's not a distress call. It's a warning. She's the one who comes up with a plan to destroy the ship to just get out of there and say, fuck the company. We're getting out of here. She's the one who devises the way to kill it by blowing out the airlock. Ripley is always the smartest one in the room. And at that point in 1979, we didn't have that like a woman heroine leading character. This was really the first of its kind in this kind of a movie. You know what I mean? Like, you had Luke Skywalker. He was the hero who saved the damsel in distress being Princess Leia. Uh, you know, Jaws was all three dudes. It was, you know, Brody and and and, and uh, Hooper and Quint. You know, three guys. You didn't have a lead female badass character who was always the smartest one in the room. And that was Ripley. She was always the smartest one in the room. If they listened to her... Everything would have been different in this movie, and that is what makes her such a compelling character is because we had never really seen anything like that before her, and then everything that comes after is some version of Ripley. You know, growing up, you and I grew up in about the same era watching the same big blockbuster movies. All the heroes, Indiana Jones, Marty McFly, The Goonies... It's all male centric, but there was one other hero that I always had that entire time. And that was Ripley, like the entire time from from aliens and alien. Um, she was she was she was a leader all the way through the movie, even even, you know, in the early moments of the movie where she's kind of, you know, talking with Dallas. You can tell like she's not she's not just like kowtowing to him because he's the captain. She's asserting herself. And by the way, the only other voice of reason in the movie was Lambert. Once Dallas was taken, she's like, let's blow this ship up. Let's take, let's take a, let's take a, you know, one of the, the, the little ships and just get the fuck out of here. Like she just says, she says it. She says what the audience would be thinking. The two women are the ones going, let's get the hell out of here. And Parker too, to credit Parker. He was like, fuck all this shit. Yeah. Um, you know, that's something that at the time was absolutely groundbreaking. It really was. And, uh, and, you know, the, the casting of Sigourney Weaver, I'm sure we're going to get to that in categories. The casting of Sigourney Weaver, uh, you know, just sealed the deal. Yeah, it's a brilliant, it's just a brilliant character. And I want to highlight that because, again, I'm sure there are, I'm not saying there have never been strong here, you know, strong female characters in these kind of movies ever before, but this was the game changer. She was always the smartest one in the room. If they listened to Ripley, they would have at least, they would have survived. At least some of them would have survived and it wouldn't have just been her. But, you know, in the end, she's the one who survives because she was the smartest one in the room. So I appreciate that she was written that way. And again, going back to the original script, it wasn't written that way. It was all, uh, Ripley was a man. They were all men. Um, So the fact that Ridley Scott had the foresight to not only turn Ripley into a woman, but make her the heroine, make her the survivor, make her the the smartest one in the room. 
huge credit to Ridley Scott because this film doesn't play the same if it's a guy named if it's Eric Ripley and it's some dude you know it's just it feels so much more um generic so much more you know atypical to what we know and I'm not saying it wouldn't have been a good film because the bones would have still been there but the fact that it was Ripley as a woman was groundbreaking and so different than anything that had been done up to that time and every every character that we get you know every character we get after that in horror or science fiction that strong powerful smart woman is some bit or piece of ellen ripley yeah it's it's the dna of ripley all day long and that and that's credit to sigourney weaver which i'm sure we'll be talking about shortly one thing before we go to categories damon do you know what the original ending of the movie was do i know this why do i feel like i do know this tell me anyways i feel like i do know this so the, so what Ridley Scott calls the fourth act, which is the, the scene of her in the escape pod, and she realizes the aliens in there with her. She strips down, gets into the spacesuit and blows it out the airlock. Um, that's the fourth act of this movie. Um, originally, she was not going to win. Originally, the alien was going to win. And the alien was going to then call for a distress signal using her voice. Saying, this is Ellen Ripley, like, come find, like, someone come help me. <laughs> like, boy, would that have shit the bed? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, like I don't know why. I, again, Dan, o Dan O'Bannon's great, great ideas. <laughs> we didn't use them all, folks, thankfully. But that would have been the weirdest ending. I would have been like, I mean, it would have been creepy. I get it. The creep factor of it it's makes a more, sense. It's a more dystopian ending, you know. We don't, and you know, it, it's like you know, it's like the shark winning in Jaws, you know, like you, <laughs> it's like the shark winning in Jaws, and then grabbing the radio and going, "It's me, Brody, come and get me. <laughs> come and get I'm me. over here." Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm, te I'm telling you right now, like I never, I, I mean, I did notice the similarities and like everything, but really, they did, they truly did, like take Alien and then reshape it into Species, like. 10 years later, whenever they made Species in 1989 with Natasha Hitchens, they're like, we're going to make a horny movie. We're going to make it, we're going to make it really sexualized. And we're, you know, like they really did yeah. take all the bones of that and like kind of turn it into that movie. But yeah, that's, I mean, I get it. And I, I do occasionally like the dark endings where, you know, the good guy doesn't yeah, get away, I, you know, the dystopian ending, but yeah, that would have been a totally different movie had they ended it that way. Yeah, it's just it's a it was an odd ending. But I will say this before we before we move into categories, if you're gonna rip off any movie, rip off Alien. I mean, it just it's lightning in a bottle, man. There 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 are few movies where I can say, don't change a frame of this, don't change anything, director's cut or otherwise. Like this movie is fucking perfect. Like, go make your movie however you want to make it. And like literally just rip this off, like well, figure out a way to rip it off either on the structural level, on the production design level, rip it off on the on the visceral level, like find your way because this movie is unflappable. There are there are a lot of alien copies out there. Um, one thing I will and this is again, I know I'm an amateur, you know, I'm a professional writer, but an amateur when it comes to filmmaking. So I'm sure any screenwriter who might listen to this would tell me to fuck right off. But one thing I did notice of science fiction movies that have the bones of Alien as their DNA of what makes that movie. One thing, one biggest complaint, I'm not going to name, I'm not going to name names. I don't want to downplay it. I just want to mention it. And I know, I know anyone listening to this will probably say, oh yeah, I know what you're talking about. I know the movies you're talking about without saying it. They take this formula and they try to overcomplicate it. Yeah. Don't do that. This is such a, and I understand you got you can't just make fucking Alien. I get it. You can't just make Alien over again. 
like again, Species. It's not the best movie in the world. I enjoy it. I still enjoy Species. It's a fun, horny, you know, movie, and you know, I, I still enjoy it for what it is. But that's it's basically Alien, really reshaped in Los Angeles or wherever it takes place in you know the nineteen eighties, and, and, and the bones of it are very similar to what Alien is. A lot of the science fiction movies that came after Alien that said, we're going to take Alien, but we're going to make it better. No, you didn't. Like, you may have tried, and there are good versions. Let me be clear. There are good versions of of an Alien-esque story. But by and large, when you try to overcomplicate and you add in all these wrinkles, and we'll get to it eventually when they did the prequel with Prometheus, which I have just a multitude of issues with. Um, when you try to overcomplicate it, you ruin what made Aliens such a simple, effective, classic horror story. That's it. I just want to throw that in there. Keep it simple. And um, every movie that we've ever said was great on this podcast was very simple. And yeah. this movie, this movie's incredibly simple. And I think it's a it's a lesson in how to tell your stories. Like you think you need to say a lot. You don't. Yeah. It's just like the character development. There is no character development. We don't know these people, but we, but we, but by the end you're caring whether they live or die, you know, care whether they live or die and they feel lived in. They feel like they belong in that world. Like that's, that goes way beyond what you, what you write on the page or what they have to say out of their mouths. Everything they do, every movement, everything matters towards making them feel authentically like they really exist in that space. Like they've been on the Nostromo together for years. This is a crew that has served together for quite some time, minus Ash, which they make sure and mention that, that he's a new add-on to this crew. Everyone else has been together. They've all been working together for quite a while. Damn right. Yeah. All right, let's get into categories, and we're going to kick things off as we do each and every week here on the show. We're going to talk about best performance. Um, Let me just mention real quick, Mm. I know I say this sometimes when we do these shows, and I know people probably get sick of me saying this, everyone in this cast was great. There was not a weak link in this cast. And obviously, a lot of people from this movie went on to do other great things. You know, Harry Dean Stanton had an incredible career. Sigourney Weaver, we all know. Tom Skerritt had a great career. Yafet Kodo, we actually talked about him. We did the Freddy's, uh, the Nightmare on Elm Street series. He was in Freddy's Dead. Um, who, again, <laughs> not, not his best day. <laughs> not his best day of work, necessarily, but he's in that movie. Um, you know, so yeah, everyone in here, you know, was a good actor. I want to throw that out there. This is a, you know, seven person ensemble cast plus the one guy for the aliens. So basically eight people in this movie, and everyone did a great job. Oh yeah, no. This is this is a perfect cast. Ridley Scott said it. His favorite ensemble he's ever worked with. I mean, that's for a man with a storied career. That's an incredible statement to make. Um, Damon, I are you going to be shocked if you if I tell you that my best performance is Sigourney Weaver is Ripley? Really, really, really. I mean, come. On, I was going to. I went out on a limb this time. I I went against the grain. You know me, agent provocateur. Uh, yeah, come on, guys, gals, everybody in between. We all love Ripley. We all worship at her altar because she did something that like nobody else could do. It, it, what she did is she grounded this movie. And this is in Sigourney Weaver's performance. Now, when when Ridley Scott cast this movie, he he said when she walked in the door, I knew it was her. He goes, uh, he goes, it, it didn't take it didn't take but five seconds. But what really got me was when she started acting in front of me, she wasn't overacting. She wasn't giving me everything she could possibly give. Everything she was giving you was everything she was giving me was behind her eyes. She's a very measured character. Yeah. As measured as she can be. You can see that she's frustrated sometimes, but she doesn't overdo it. 
you could you can tell that people get under her skin, but she doesn't overdo it. And then when it's time to get pissed off, she when she launches at Parker at one point and she goes, God damn it. She says something. It's like the screams I heard at my house growing up. <laughs> like it's, it's real anger, right? She there are so many small moments in this movie where you realize that that acting is about how subtle you can be, not how big you can be. And Sigourney Weaver just gives a masterclass in subtlety. There's a moment that I'd, I'd never noticed before the way I noticed it this time. Um, when she discovers Lambert and Parker dead, and it's kind of a, it's one of the more horrific scenes in the movie. Like she, she sees like kind of in the, in the foreground, you can see a bit of what must be Lambert. And then uh, Parker's f- uh, hunched over and blood dripping down him. She groans and shudders in a way that just felt so real in that moment. Like it just, it, it felt like somebody like, you know, Damon, we've watched thousands of horror movies and, and action movies where people get shot to death and killed. She was playing a person who might never have seen a dead body in her life. Yeah. And, and, and the people that she was about to get away with are, have just been viciously murdered by this monster. And she shudders and shakes and groans in a way that felt so a bit visceral. That same that same thematic thread of viscerality comes across in that moment. And I just went, oh, that felt so real. That's Sigourney Weaver. That's the genius of Sigourney Weaver. Yeah, she's incredible. And as I mentioned at the beginning, this was her second thing ever. Like, it's it's wild. Like, there's just certainly a lot of great actors out there get better as they get more work. And that's not that's not a knock. That's just experience. You get better with experience. But there's certain actors. I don't know why I'm thinking of this as an example. But like when you see Leonardo DiCaprio in What's Eating Gilbert Grape and he's a kid. You see him right away and say, oh, that kid's good. And he just continued to grow. And and, but you knew it right. You knew it even as a kid actor. You knew right then that kid was good. Sigourney Weaver, this is her second role ever, and she killed yeah. it. And it's wild to think that the original person they were considering for this role was her old Yale uh, classmate, Meryl Streep, was the original mm-hmm. person they thought about for Ripley, but then her partner, John Cazale, died, and they decided, you know what, we can't bother her, we can't, you know, we don't want to, yeah. you know, we don't want to contact her and, you know, burden her with this offer make her make choices while she's grieving and so they went to Sigourney Weaver and even Sigourney Weaver was a stroke of luck like from my understanding she missed the audition she was late to the audition they had to stick around for her she finally got in there and then as you said Ridley Scott saw her and was like this is Ripley but it's wild and I know there's a million stories like this in film history as far as um people who were gonna play parts and didn't play parts and casting all that kind of stuff but and Meryl Streep's obviously an incredible actress. Like she's, you know, <laughs> if you were going to replace her with anybody, you'd have to replace her with Meryl Streep. Yeah, but it's wild to think that like Meryl Streep was the one they considered. Of course, Meryl Streep went on to become one of the greatest actors of any generation, and then Sigourney Weaver steps in here in her second role ever and absolutely murders it in this role. She's incredible. Um, yeah, she's unbelievable, and and she really does make this movie, and you know, she becomes synonymous with the entire Alien franchise. So yeah, um, so. Of course, the real answer to best performance is Sigourney Weaver. Let me be honest about that. But I did go a different route because I wanted to pay homage to somebody else in this movie. And the other person that I think really did steal the show, when you really watch the performance, who had the best nuanced 
And when I say this word, you're going to know what I'm talking about. The most sinister performance of this entire movie. And that is yeah. Ian Holm as Ash. Yeah. Yep. Of course, Ian Holm passed away. Um, he passed away a couple of years ago. Um, he was great in The Fifth Element more recently. He was great in um, The Day After Tomorrow. He's in that movie more recently. And as far as like the last like 10, 15 years. But he passed away for a couple of years ago. He is so good in this movie. And when you really. So the big reveal that he's an android is shocking in the moment because you realize he's kind of a cold, he's a science officer. He's a man of science. So he's kind of cold and a little detached throughout the movie anyways. But then when you find out he's an Android, you're like, Oh shit. Like I really do understand it. But then go back. And as you said, rewatch the movie a couple of times, you see all the little subtleties, not only that hint to him being an Android, but also that hint to him being basically a plant for the company to save the alien and fuck the crew. Like yeah. you find out in that moment with mother that she says the crew's expendable, but you see little dots, just like I talked about with the distress signal, the, you know, when he says, why, what's the purpose of that? Letting them in from the quarantine, all the little things that Ash does that leads them to destruction, to death and destruction, watch it and then rewatch it. And you'll see the little nuances and the subtle things that Ian Holm does with that character that just spelled doom for this for this crew. Like as much as the alien kills them, Ian Holm as Ash dooms them just as much because they yeah. don't get on board without Ash. They don't let the alien escape. Uh, they don't potentially let the alien escape Kane without Ash. All the things that happen are because he sets it in motion, and so totally. his performance is so sinister and. It takes you a couple times watching it to really understand what he was doing with that character. He never had to be a robot like this. The script could have never gone that direction. It is just the way he plays it. He's cold. He's calculating, but he doesn't feel robotic. Like nothing about him feels robotic ever. It's how he like the way he was like, oh, well, let me think about this humanoid android robot and not go, you know, does not compute like he, he never does that. Never, even when, even after they've beheaded him and he's, they rewired him to start talking again, he doesn't talk like a robot. He doesn't, nothing about him changes. He doesn't make any of those choices. He, he stuck to the humanity of that character, which was the lack of humanity. The fact that he was sociopathic, that he was, that he was goal driven, that he was cold and callous towards those people. He used the human element to make that character impactful, not the robot element. He just knew how to weave in the certain robotic things, the, the, the be, to be able to recite the contract from memory instantly, to be able to uh, talk about the alien's makeup when he was examining it or, or talking about things that he had learned about for, from it. But for, the, but for the most part, you could take out that he was an android and nothing about that performance needs to change at all. It's genius. He's, it's such a good performance. He was a great character actor throughout his entire career, but this was just gold standard acting. Like I said, again, you know, Sigourney Weaver is unbelievable. And this was the movie that introduced me and the rest of the world to Sigourney Weaver. But Ian Holm really does yeah. deserve a lot of credit for how much he helped. You know, as much as Sigourney Weaver stole the show, if she had a silver medalist in this movie, it's 100% Ian Holm. 
hundred percent. Like no question. They, they, they are the two stars of the show. It is. And again, to be clear, everyone was good though. Like Tom Scarra oh, yeah. plays, you know, oh, yeah. da, da, they're all good. Veronica Cartwright, Yafet Koto is incredible. I love Parker. So like great. the whole, the whole carry. I love, I grew up to become a huge Aaron Dean Stanton fan. Like he was in big yeah. love. Uh, he obviously, yeah. he also passed away. Sadly, a lot of people in this cast have passed away. Uh, but Harry Dean Stanton went on to have a great big career and he's incredible too. Everyone in this cast is good. The only, you know, one, you know, the one cast. I'm going I'm to call it out right now. We're talking about best performance. You know, the one cast member that I don't like in this movie, Patrick do tell the fucking cat that cat <laughs> Jonesy that cat gets more people killed in this movie than anybody like that fucking cat running away and doing shit like it gets more people killed in this movie than, than fucking Ash does <laughs> it really does it really, it really was the reason and in Aliens she's like you're staying here yeah fuck you <laughs> when Jonesy she, when she goes to the LV426 she's like no you're st- you are not coming with me Jonesy yeah and fuck you Jonesy stay right here you keep escaping and people run after you and then you get fucking killed and it's like you're setting this up cats are we know cats are evil we all know that oh, yeah. like you know the cat was 100 trying to get brett killed you know that right like the, the yeah, cat he was, wanted to watch that happen because the cat was lurking behind the, the the thing and like looking at it, like let me just see this fucker die i'm just saying <laughs> that especially in that moment where like you you hear brett's screams echoing in the room and the cat's just like just kind of looking just yeah. kind of watching going oh that's interesting i never thought about killing somebody that yeah thing. fuck that cat know. is what i'm saying fuck jonesy is all i'm saying so uh, what if alien romulus the new <laughs> fetty alvarez movie is where the alien attached itself to Jonesy, <laughs> the cat alien. I, you know what I appreciate about the alien franchise is they continue to evolve and change how the aliens are created, and yeah. uh, you know just like they do, of course, in Alien Three, which we'll get to in a couple movies from now. But um, and that one's a, that's a whole other deep dive into like what the original Alien Three was going to be, which right. we'll talk about at that point. But yeah, like I like that they keep evolving how the aliens are created. So maybe Jonesy was infected. Maybe that's what actually happened. Fucking cat we'll find out yeah uh let's talk about favorite character uh we had seven crew members on this on this uh on the on the nostromo so what is your favorite who is your favorite character in alien i loved everybody i really did the answer would have been everybody truly because everyone gave their little moments had their little moments really scott calls it the best grouping of character the best group of character actors on the planet is what he called it um but i ultimately went with yafet kodo's uh, parker um, Yafet Kodos Parker, as I mentioned early in the podcast, um, sort of the blue collar, him, him and Brad are the blue collar guys on the ship. They're engineers. Uh, they're just, they're making sure the mechanics on the, on the ship are going correctly. They're not respected in the same way. Parker would bring up the grievances a guy like myself would bring up. He'd be like, Hey, you're not considering us just cause like we're the grunts, like fuck this shit. You know, like he, like, and, and his pleas to when he, when he's pleading, uh, pleading to um, Dallas and Ash, she's going to just freeze him, dude, freeze him. Like, what are you doing? Like, and, and it's, and it, I, again, I could have given best performance to Yafet Kodo because I'm hearing the desperation in the character's voice. Like, dude, I, I'm the fucking grunt worker here. And I know what we should be doing. Why aren't you doing it? That doesn't make sense. And them completely ignoring him. Yeah. And then there's the other things where it's like, he likes to push buttons. You know, he loved it. He was talking about the shares. He 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 had a, a, a contentious relationship with Ripley. He poked at her. That was his thing. His thing was to fucking poke at her. He didn't like her. Probably thought she was too much of a stiff upper lip. He didn't like her. So he fucked with her all the time. L- all these great little nuances to this character that I really loved. 
Very sarcastic and uh, very biting. You know, that great scene where Ripley comes down there and, and Brett and Parker are talking to her and she says, fuck off, Parker. Uh, you know, they're big, he's, he's like, he's like, what'd you say, Rip? What'd you say? Yeah, the steam. He's got the steam going yeah. super loud so he so he can't hear what she's saying. Yeah, like, they're, they're, and just like I said, I mean, even like I said, jokingly with like the horny scene when they're about to eat dinner and he's like, I wish I was eating something else. He's yeah. just very, like, he's got he's got the best one-liners in this movie. Like, he's very Definitely. much that guy. And I love you, Fet Coda. Um, so originally, again, to be fair, how we do this is Patrick, you make the categories, you make your picks, and then I make my picks. So I know your picks going into it, you don't know mine, and I usually generally try to pick different things. Um, so we're not always having the same conversation. Originally, Parker was going to be my choice because I thought you were going to go for the other route, which was everyone's favorite choice, which is what I'm going to talk about now, which is Ellen Ripley. Um, as a character, I don't want to just repeat everything I said 10 minutes ago, but because she is the smartest person in the room, because she makes all the right choices, makes me love that character. Because so much of what is predicated around horror and science fiction in these situations is inevitably someone making a dumb decision. It's written into the DNA of these films. And I understand it. You don't get to horrific atrocities being carried out without somebody making a dumb decision. You know what I mean? Like, I, it doesn't matter. It's the tale as old as time where horror is concerned. We all understand that. And you have to separate yourself enough to understand people actually do make dumb decisions. Now we have complained on this podcast numerous times when characters in films just continuously make dumb, really like idiotic decisions. And it ruins a movie Cause you're just like, there's no way they would do that. Like it's one thing to like, you know, we should have turned left and we went right. It's a whole other thing when you're making, you know, you're like, hold on. It's like the, the car commercial where they're like, uh, let's, let's run behind the wall of chainsaws. No, let's just run. Like, why don't we go in the, why don't we go in the, in the running car? And the guy's like, are you insane? Like, you know, the really stupid choices that we mock on this show. Sometimes you need dumb choices sometimes to get where you're at in these movies. The dumb choices that lead to the destruction of the Nostromo and the death of this cast are not unequivocally stupid. They're doing, like, you know, exploring an alien ship is what they're told to do. Kane getting attacked, all they're really trying to do is save their crewmate. They're not yeah. scientists. Remember, these are people collecting ore in the middle of space. They're basically, you know, miners, for lack of a better word. Yeah. You know, so they're not out there. You know, they're not space explorers. They're not scientists. They're not soldiers. You know, some guy get their guy gets attacked. They're just trying to save him. They're not worried yeah. about we're bringing on an alien onto the ship and it's going to attack us and be the death of us all. They're not thinking that deeply about it. They're thinking we got to save this guy's life. So the decisions that Dallas and to make make sense in the moment. But Ripley being the voice of reason saying no. The rule is we get something alien, something we don't know, some unknown life form is out there. You have to be quarantined for 24 hours. I can't let you on the ship. You know, everything that she does is the right choice. And I appreciate that there's that one voice of reason. And in this movie, it's it's Ripley. Yeah, Damon, I could have we could basically have just gone down the line and talked about why every character in this movie is great. Yeah, they all add something to it. They all do their part. There's no dead weight in this movie. There's just not. Uh, not even Jonesy, not even Jonesy, who I know you hate. 
nobody nobody's dead weight in this movie they all carry their part we could we could literally go on about all the people in this movie yeah they're all good they are all really good i liked all the characters so all right let's talk about best line and patrick you bastard you have the best line let me be honest about this i wish i could tell you that you didn't but you do have the best line so set up your best line which is actually the overall best line although i did pick a different one so what is your best line set it up for us and we'll play it here it is certainly the best line of the movie, but it's also a very important line in all horror films, and that is the praise of the killer speech. When one character talks about the killer, talks about the monster in a reverential way. And it's, by the way, one of my favorite scenes of all time in this movie is when they uh, they knocked Ash's head off after he tried to kill Ripley, realizing he's an android. They replug him back in to get whatever kind of information they can get out of him. And what he gives them is not helpful in the least. Admires purity. Survivor. Unclouded by conscience, remorse, or delusions of morality. Look, I'm, I've heard enough of this, and I'm asking you to pull the plug. Last word. What? I can't lie to you about your chances, but you have my sympathies. So cold, so cold. And, and, and when he talks about admiring it, you know, it's something he would like to be. He admires it. There's penis envy, right? You know, yeah. like literally it's cold. It's calculating. It, it doesn't, it's not weighed down by remorse or morality or any of those things. It's pure. And he loved it for that, you know, because I think part of him related to it has, it's just this pure killing machine. Yeah. Um, very haunting line delivered so well with that, with that gurgling dying digital voice is just fucking perfect. Yeah. You have my sympathies. It's like, you're fucked. So good yeah. luck is basically what he's saying. So, um, <laughs> Yeah, Eat it, your heart out, Hal 9000. That's that's a fucking that's a droid fucking giving you the bad news. And I like what you said there is like he wants to be like he envies the alien in a way like he envies yeah. that like he's not that cold and calculating or that he can't be that cold and calculating because as you said, he's 30 percent human. He doesn't want that. He wants to be as cold and calculating as the alien. So that's terrifying line, which kind of speaks to where we're at now with artificial intelligence. Um my favorite line um, goes back to when Kane first comes on the ship and they're trying to figure out what this face hugger is on him. And a couple of very important lines are spoken that really carry on throughout the entire um, Alien franchise. Arguably two of the most important lines regarding the future of what we become to know as the xenomorph of the alien itself when they give it a name. And this is one of the most iconic parts of the movie when they try to remove the alien from his face and they cut into the finger and acids pours out and it goes down into the ship and Dallas freaks out and says, it's going to burn through the goddamn hall. And they run to the ship and they find where this acid's bleeding out. And it's a conversation with, excuse me, with Dallas, with Brett and with Parker, where they basically realize how dangerous this alien truly is dead or alive. And not anything like that, except, uh, molecular acid. It must be using it for blood. It's got a wonderful defense mechanism. You don't dare kill it. Just that simple line. Wonderful, wonderful defense mechanism. You don't dare kill it. Yeah. 
Totally. Uh, I mean, what a great way to just set up that, like, what we're going to go up against, we can't shoot it. That's not going to help. Yeah. That's that's not going to get us out of this situation. And, like, you know, th- now now you're in a real tricky predicament. And it, and it was great setup. I, I just like that you must be using it for blood, which becomes a, a hallmark of this entire franchise. It's acid mm-hmm. for blood. And then, obviously, it says wonderful defense mechanism. You don't dare kill it because you realize if you actually kill this thing, if you actually cut it in half and kill it, it's going to burn through your ship and you're going to die in space. Um, yeah. It's it's harrowing and it sets up the it really does set up everything that comes with these aliens from aliens to alien three to alien resurrection. Everything is built upon that revelation of the acid for blood. Yeah, I love that. God, yeah. and, and it is it is one of those other moments in the film where I like unforgettable dialogue. Yeah, it's great. It's just great delivery. All right. Let's talk about best scare, because this is at its core. As much as I love aliens and we will do aliens next, that is much more of an action movie than it is a horror movie. Now, there are definitely horror elements. Oh, it yeah. is. But that's much more of an action movie than it is just a straight up horror movie. Alien is a straight-up horror movie. There are a lot of good scares in this movie. So, Patrick, what is your best scare in Alien? I have to imagine this was hard for you to narrow down. It was hard to narrow down. Um, But I really went for, like, again, on this one, I was looking at the viscerality of it all. Um, I have always loved when Kane comes upon the egg and the and just the build up there. Fantastic dread and tension in the build up because he's examining the egg. You can see the fluttering on the inside. As you said, it was Ridley Scott's hands and rubber gloves in there making the motions. And then the egg opens up this very weird organic way that it kind of flowers at him. And he looks in and you see, you know, they use real like I think it was like sheep, sheep and cow organs and sinew and fats and stuff. So it looks like real gore. And then there's just this moment where you see a slithering and then the way it jumps out, I think... Uh, taps into sort of like this visceral um, humanistic thing. Like if you see a spider on the wall and you want it to leave the room and you're trying to brush it away and it jumps at you, (laughs) it's the same, it's the exact same reaction. And this is a spider-like creature. It has that look to it. But the tail whips and the fingers reach out into your face. And it's just fucking, it's so primal. The fear is so primal in that moment that I went for that scare this time around. That is a great one. And that that is honestly, the, that is the moment in this movie when shit gets real. Like, up to that point, you're not quite sure what's going to happen. Like, you really don't know what they're looking at. Now, granted, when you fall down into this cavern and there's this weird mist and a laser-looking thing and you run down and you see eggs, my first instinct would be run, not let's see what's in the fucking eggs. But... When that thing flowers out and opens up and he looks down into the egg and you're like, holy shit, something's going to happen. And I know I say this all the time. Some of the best scares are when you know something's coming and it still works. That to me is the most effective scare in horror films when you know something's coming, but it still works. And that's a perfect example of that. You know, it's not going to end well. You know, (laughs) something's coming out of that egg and it's not. Now, do you expect it to crash through his helmet, wrap on attached to his face? Absolutely not. But, you know, something's coming. You know, something's going to pop out of this fucking egg. That is the moment when shit gets real. Like That is the moment when you're like, oh, yeah, they're fucked. Um, (laughs) It's such a great moment. And it is. It's it's actually very scary because when it happens, you're like, oh, it's so jarring the way it happens. So that is an iconic scene. So. For me, 
I debated this one for a long time, Patrick, because I was like, man, the scene when the arm pops out at Ripley and the escape pod is really fucking good. Great scare. The, the, the Dallas death when he just sees the alien just pops out in front of him and his arms are out of him. That's a great scare. Brett dying is a good scare, although, again, very foreboding. You see, you know something's going to happen, but still very good. But I just keep revisiting to the classic, the moment that shocked me the most. And I wish, I wish I'd been able to see this movie in the theater and not have seen other movies before it. It's the chestburster yeah. scene. Amazing. Even though I knew, even though I had seen Spaceballs and I had seen Alien, when I finally did see Alien and I understood the full breadth of what that is, because really they don't like they do show it in Aliens. One's in a dream sequence and they show it on LV four twenty six, but that's really it. That's the only time you really see the chest yeah. bursting scene again. It's still not as visceral and as real as what happens in Alien when Kane starts convulsing and choking and twitching and and you know going into spasms. And then this thing just fucking punches through his chest and you just feel it. And one thing I want to compliment Ridley Scott on with this is it's dead silent. Mm -hmm. There's no background score like dun, 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 you know, no, 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 no big orchestra dead silence. You hear this thing punching through him yeah. and you hear You hear the crunch of the bone and you hear him going ah, and everyone's like, oh, shit. And then yeah. you see it just punch through in the second time. This thing comes out the big silver tooth cock. <laughs> <laughs> it's so jarring when that happens. Cause again, I saw space balls. I saw aliens. When I finally saw alien, I still was stunned at how it happened. So that to me is the best scare. And Damon, it rolls right into my best gore, which was the chest burster scene. Um, but but it's it's scary all the same it, it it i got to i went to go see this i think it was on its 40 or 45 year release uh in the theater i went to go see it packed house clearly a bunch of big alien fans but uh, you know it's my favorite movie i have to see it on i i actually did get to see this in the theater as well i got i think it was the same release i saw it yeah actually i did too. yeah every one of the scares worked like it, and i was surprised by that because i'm like i i'd memorized this movie so I was like, I knew every scare was coming, but the the amount of people in the audience that were jumping, that were reacting to something that I think they all knew. When I remember I was, I was sitting next to a woman when when the when his chest explodes with that with that big blood splatter, like before it actually breaks through. I mean, the I either that woman had never heard of Alien <laughs> or the chest burner burster in her entire life, or it is truly one of the greatest scares that's ever been manufactured she jumped to fucking high hell <laughs> and then damon as you talk as we talked about at length earlier it finally in the next cut it emerges and that gorgeous gore because this is my best gore uh, as it rises out covered in blood and its tail slithering around his intestines and 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 the blood up upwelling from his from his chest cavity and as you mentioned which i fucking love the little detail of his hands twitching as, as his, as his, as the life is, is leaving his nervous system. It's, it's a thing of absolute beauty. It is, it is what turned me Damon to a gore whore because you could just pause that scene and play it over and over and over again. If you're a psycho like me, because it, you just go, how did this ha like, it's the perfect constructed scene 
and then the gore in it is just gorgeous and you know ridley scott um used real like i like i mentioned earlier he was using pig intestines and cow intestines he was going he was having the butcher and the fishmongers and like any anybody who was who was dealing in blood and guts he'd go get real blood and guts and put it on there so the, the set must have stunk to high hell but that gore in there, I mean, everything about it felt real. I, Damon, I watched uh, one of my kids get cut out of my wife's belly. Not too dissimilar. <laughs> <laughs> like, not too dissimilar. We've talked about the great Tom Savini on this show, the great Greg Nicotero. Um, the the effects in this movie actually won an, won an Oscar. Yeah, nice. Uh, this yeah. is an Oscar-winning movie for its visual effects because the effects in this movie are that intense. And the chestburster scene is, to me, the, the greatest scare in maybe in maybe all of uh horror history and one of the greatest pieces of gore you will ever see period so this is the best gore i'm not going to sit here and pretend it's not it is the best yeah. gore when that thing crunches through his bones and punches through his chest the first time and the blood goes flying and hits everybody and veronica cartwright's reaction is so iconic when she just like freaks out that she just got splattered with blood and i re i rewatched this scene no less than five times when I was rewatching to get ready for this podcast because I wanted to examine every crew member as it happened. I wanted to specifically yeah. key in on each crew member. That's where I got the, my, my, my funny Ash moment where he just gets wide-eyed and just watches it walk away when he's like, don't touch it, don't touch it, and he just goes, Woo. Um, <laughs> Everyone has a different reaction. You know, Ripley's shocked reaction. Uh, um, uh, Dallas kind of like, stunned but also like you know he's actually one of the people holding down Kane yeah. Parker was like on the ground trying to put the fork in his mouth to make him from biting down on it you know trying to keep his tongue they thought that he was having convulsions or he was you know he was going into that he was having a seizure all the little intricacies of that and then when the thing bursts out of his chest and just the wa the blood just goes flying and boy I tell you what the blood man on set that day earned his paycheck and when that thing comes out and it just does that little and then, and then it's honestly the best gore is when the creature comes out and it's all white and you know very phallic as you mentioned the silver teeth there's like this little drip of blood that just mm -hmm. flows over the top of its head and you realize oh that's Kane's innards just like wrapped around this creature it's yeah. so it's such an attention to detail and mm -hmm. so like disgusting that it's absolutely the best gore. Oh my God. Could you, Damon, if I was going to do a time, a time machine, I go, please take me back to opening night of alien in 1979 and let me watch people watch that happen on screen. It's one of my, incredible. One of my favorite things on like, when I go on TikTok, they do like the, um, all they film audience reactions. Like I love, I like, I do. I, I enjoy it. Yeah. I watched the like the audience reaction when all of the Avengers return in Avengers oh, Endgame yeah. and everyone's like oh one. cheering Black Panther when Spider Man No Way Home came out and you see Andrew Garfield everyone freaks I love I enjoy to watch those videos I, I love those yeah that's one of, one of the best parts of the theater experience is enjoying it with a group of people I wish there was video of people seeing this for <sighs> the first time in 1979 like a camera on them of seeing this fucking thing burst out of this guy's chest it would have been so great. Oh, I want that. I want that experience so bad. <laughs> it's incredible. It's so incredible, David. It's so incredible. Yeah. Let's talk about the best sci-fi details. Can you explain this category, Patrick? Well, you know, I, I figure we all pretty much, I don't think we ever do sci-fi on this show. Very rare. I think it's very rare if we've ever done a sci-fi horror 
It's not it's, really. It's, not that I could. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure we have, but not. It like doesn't pop up. Chopping mall, kinda like a little bit. Yeah, <laughs> barely. So uh, there was just too much sci-fi deliciousness in this movie, not to just take a moment to appreciate it. Because again, you are dealing with one of the greatest production production designers of all time. Truth be told, I'm not the biggest Blade Runner fan, like the original Blade Runner, but I, I agree that it is maybe the best production design film ever made. Like just the attention to detail. It's gorgeous. You get, it's, it's gorgeous. It's a gorgeous film. You get that in Alien in spades. Like it's just, it's all over this movie. Again, you can pour your, your eyes can pour over this, the entire screen and get experiences left and right. So I was like, I do have to take a moment out to just go, is there something in the background, something you saw that you just absolutely loved? And for me, it was the wet room. And ever since I was a kid, and I didn't, when I was a kid, I didn't give a shit about, you know, any of the, the science part of the science fiction. I was just way into the fiction part. You know, people bring up it's not supposed to rain in there, whatever. I didn't care. But that room is so coolly designed. You know, it's some sort of boiler room or something. There's there's heavy equipment in there that that is often not, you're not noticing it because you're too busy on the great close-ups of like Harry Dean Stanton or, or uh, Veronica Cartwright or et cetera. But whenever the people enter that room, everything in that room is perfectly made. And it also is perfectly used. Nothing's clean. It looks like it's been mining ore on some far distant comet or some old, some dusty old planet. Everything looks used. Everything looks work, you know, it, it like it's been in working order. And it's the design of it looks fucking awesome. You go, damn, like, what is that machine over there? Like, and these are things that just play the background. They're never in, they're never in the shot. They don't play a part in the plot, but they are so perfectly designed. You believe they're real. Yeah, oh, absolutely. It's, it's a really... Again, the attention to detail in this movie is pretty amazing for what it was. Again, you, you can read you know online a million different articles about all the miniatures and the set design and the and the sets they built and where they built them and how they built them. It's it really was a, a huge attention to detail and Ridley Scott, you know, deserves all the praise in the world for kind of mastering this and kind of uh, maneuvering this to work the way it did and make it look the way it looked because the Nostromo as a whole doesn't look like what you would think a normal spaceship would look like. Like it doesn't look like anything out of Star Wars. He created a totally wholly new looking spacecraft. Same thing with the build with with the rooms inside. You talk about the wet room. Same kind of thing. Like this is a ship made to mine ore. It's a it's a it's a mining ship. So he made yeah. it. Look look like a mining ship and so that wet room is a perfect example of that yeah the whole place is is essentially a refinery so yeah. it, it functions like one and it looks like one and it sounds like one and it looks like it smells like one like they're just i just loved all those fucking details yeah so my original answer for best sci-fi detail which is something we're going to discuss in greater detail when we get to prometheus which i do love when they go down into the derelict spaceship and you find the alien yeah. creature with the chest burst out and you're just like, what the fuck is this? And mm -hmm. for the next 40 years or 30 years or however long until they fucked up Prometheus, <laughs> people theorized and questioned and, and wondered how it all came to be and what was that creature? What was that alien? How did this happen? Why? And again, not to ruin a spoiler for a future review, I enjoyed the mystery of it. I enjoyed mm -hmm. the like not knowing. It's just like that's scarier because like, oh, shit, there was another alien race and these things came out of them. OK, that was my original answer. That's an easy one. though. So I want to go a little deeper. I want to go a little deeper on this movie, Patrick, because that's such an easy one. And I, I do want to talk about that if we can in a second. We didn't really talk yeah. about that part. But my my favorite sci fi detail rewatching it this time was the self-destruct mechanism in the ship. Yeah. 
Oh, I love because that detail. As sci-fi movies, we talk about, you know, how difficult it would be to in some sense to make Alien in 2023 because the impatience of the studios or in some cases the audience of waiting an hour to really the exciting incident where the alien appears. In modern cinema, a self-destruct mechanism is literally opening a glass case and punching a button. But not on this one. You have to. She she opens a like a a a case from underneath the floor. She has to unscrew two screws, pop that open. She has to bring up these four different cylinders, punch in all these buttons and keys, and flip all these switches and everything to actually activate it. I love that attention to detail because it's not as simple as jokingly what they do in in Spaceballs, where you know Dark Helmet falls backwards into a button and he hits the self-destruct mechanism. Like That kind of becomes the running joke of science fiction films. You can just press a button. Now, I understand, to a certain extent, like you could get the idea from Star Wars where Obi-Wan Kenobi turns off the tractor beam that has trapped the Millennium Falcon. He has to shut down the tractor beam, and so that is a plot device in Star Wars, which is somewhat similar, because he doesn't just go in and press a button. He has to go into this room and do a bunch of different things but it's kind of like that in alien where she has to raise up this mechanism raise up the cylinders open the screws flip it off and then when she decides that she doesn't want to destroy the ship she wants to stop it because she's you know she needs more time and it won't allow her and she tries to do it all in a race and tries to get all back down it plays a part in how this movie ends because if it's just a button well she could stop the self-destruct because in two seconds, the fact that she has to go through it, raise the cylinders and screw the screws and press the buttons. She runs out of time. And it all matters. That's the beauty of the production design is that the overcomplication of it, first of all, makes complete sense because you're not going to destroy a giant <laughs> freighter with one button. You would never do it. It has to be such an intricate process. In fact, it would probably be far more intricate, like it would require two people in two different sides of the rooms doing something exactly the same. Well, for the sake of this movie, we're going to make it this complicated case that you have to screw things in and push things down and flip buttons and turn this and screw that. You'd have to do all that. And then it functions in the story as being complicated enough to, to, to get her to just miss her deadline to override it. It's fantastic. And, and and I'm glad you brought it up because it is one of those details that for as long as I can remember, I have poured over going, God, it just looks gorgeous. Like, I don't know what materials they were using, you know, brass and certain acrylics and all that stuff to just, and you could hear the heaviness and the sound design of the, of, of all the tools. Like it all looked and fe- felt like a very functional industrial piece of machinery. So I love that you brought that detail up because it would have caught it would have got completely over my head as just one of the many nerdy things that I've always loved about this movie. And I will say, like, again, this movie's made they made, filmed it in 1978. It came out in 1979. The only thing, in all honesty, that truly looks dated in this movie are the computer screens themselves. Because they didn't have the technology to know where we'd be with like HD televisions and everything in this day and age. But that's really, to be honest, that's truly the only thing that looks truly dated in this movie are the computer screens. Everything but else it still looks, feels cool and it still it feels otherworldly. But yeah. everything else looks futuristic. Like everything else makes you feel like you were in the future. The computer screens are the one area where you have like the green screen with a little, you know, the really like the, you know, the old school, you know, tra- dot, um, dot matrix. Dot matrix. That's the only thing that makes it look dated. Everything else absolutely just like the self-destruct mechanism looks futuristic. Yeah. 
No, I'm so glad you brought that detail because it's one I've always geeked out over. Yeah. Oh, like for, for as long as I can remember, because it's just so incredibly intricate and it feels very real, very functional, and it functions in the story. That's why Ridley Scott's a master. Like it's little things like that. Yeah. That you go, well, that should have been a throwaway thing. It's not a throwaway thing. Everything about it, the way it's designed and the way it functions in the story, all of it matters. Again, I don't want to I don't want to jump ahead because we are going to get to Prometheus. But I want to ask you about that because I want to go back to the alien they discover in the ship when they first get into that ship and you see the the giant alien sitting on the chair and his chest is burst open. It became one of the great mysteries of science fiction for years after that. And obviously they don't address it in Aliens. Uh, because they just land on LV-426 and there's already a colony of people living there. You know what I mean? And then they talk about the ship, um, but you don't actually go back into that ship in the movie. That I love that scene. I, we didn't really talk about that scene too much, but that mystery of that creature and then the creatures that come from that creature, one, yeah. of, the, one of the greatest like teases... And I don't even really know that they, like, I don't think they, like, I've read the backstory of what it was supposed to be. They call it space jockeys, and it was a different race. Yeah. And, like, there's an explanation out there. I'm not going to get into the details of it, of what they intended we'll it to be. We'll have time in Prometheus, because yeah. it will explain all this, apparently. Yeah, what they, what they intended it to be. There is a story out there. They called these creatures space jockeys, and they were, you know, they got attacked by the aliens. They were just a different life form than humans. And that the same fate befell them that ends up befelling the people on the Nostromo. But that mystery of that thing, it's a humanoid creature, but it's a big creature. And then you see the chest. It's like it looks like something burst out of it. Cause you see the bones are pushed out versus in like it didn't get attacked in. It something came out of it. It's yeah. one of the great all time like sci fi teases became one of the greatest talked about mysteries like people you know and again if this came out 2023 and no one had ever seen alien before there would be fucking message boards on reddit with like pages <sighs> dedicated to people trying to figure out what that was or what it meant oh yeah um i'm sure there still are out there some people who you know saw prometheus and said fuck this movie i'm gonna make up my own thing um <laughs> but that is one of the great it's so simple it's such a great tease like what the fuck is this and then you just move on Oh, yeah. Oh, Dave, first of all, the design is incredible. And that's really where most of Giger's like design actually gets shown off, because basically the alien ship is entirely his designs and, and, and their production designer came in and and actually recreated his concepts and, and executed them there. Um, what I love about those scenes, seeing the space jockey, seeing seeing the walls covered in like almost like a bone, like it didn't even look like it, it was like this weird mixture of organic and mechanical, the biomech, which is you have biomech tattoos. I have biomech tattoos that all comes from from Giger. What I loved is that it showed that there's a bigger world outside of the world we're going to be in. That great mystery that yeah. even I was fascinated with as a kid. Like, what the fuck was that? Like, they never get back to it. It always drove me nuts that they never got back to it. What was that thing? What was the thing it was sitting in? I always, I always imagined it was a big gun or something like yeah, that. Yeah, that's like, what it looked like. like. A guy sitting at a gunner or something. Um, what was the actual guy? Like, you know, is that his face? He looks kind of like an elephant or something. What the fuck is he? It's, it's weird. It alludes to a greater, bigger story out there somewhere. And there's a great I'm going to I'm stealing a quote from Jamie Nash, who's a screenwriter and uh, one of the hosts of um, Writers Blockbusters. The rule <laughs> when you're trying to make a, a movie on a budget that 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 implies much bigger things, you go, 
small window, big world. You're getting a small window into a much bigger world. Alien, the movie, is a small window into a world that is vast and huge. The Weyland-Yutani Corporation, their names get brought up all the time. They're out there working for them. They're up to things. That's happening somewhere, way out there somewhere. This alien ship and its design and its function and everything in there had meaning, everything in there had purpose, alluded to a bigger world. Most of this movie, 90% of this movie takes place inside interiors of a spaceship. Yeah. Like mostly the entire movie does. And the other 10% is either on that alien ship or when she's trying to blow it out of the, the airlock. 90% of the movie is contained. But when you go onto that alien ship and you see this mysterious space jockey and you go down into this, this area that must be some sort of storage area for these eggs and there's a laser over one of them and all that stuff, it alludes to something grand or something bigger, something more out there. So you get a full experience without ever having to have multiple planets and multiple characters, basically Star Wars, which Star Wars was a much bigger budget movie, yeah. had a lot more going on for it um, in terms of studio attention and all that stuff. This was a way to make Star Wars without making tons and tons of stuff. Yeah. It's genius. The mystery of it all. And like I said, it's something you absolutely attach yourself to. And again, if this came out now, there would be websites dedicated to like, what the fuck was that? What what does it mean? What does it all mean? Where did it come from? And I, I, I admit, like, again, not to you know get ahead, part of the biggest issue I have with Prometheus is over explaining the origins and i think the simplicity of this and I, again i'm not mad they made an origin story but over complicating the origin story you know and i think the mystery of this was part of what made it so scary because we don't know what that alien is we really don't know what the eggs are at that point really again it's a room full of these things you know what i mean and there's just one alien that pops on the tax cane and then we're back on the Nostromo, and then it's all away from that. We never revisit it, and they never do in any of the other films. Like an alien, you know, they, when aliens comes, they mention the ship, they mention the colonists, things like that. But we don't hear anything else about this creature, this alien. They're, you know, they it's moved on in the story. We're just dealing with these literal killing machines that are aliens. This perfect killing machine. Um, but it is a great mystery. It's a great little tease of like, what the fuck is this? I just had to mention that because we didn't really talk about it. And that's just like one of the best elements of this movie that makes it so scary and makes it so mysterious is just that one little detail, that creature sitting there with the chest burst open. And obviously when you see what happens to Kane, you're like, oh, that's what happened <laughs> to that no thing too. Here. Yeah, that's why no one's living here. That's why it's just all silent. There's just eggs and shit. Yeah, so exactly. <laughs> Fantastic detail. Let's talk about one of my what has become one of my favorite categories in this podcast, Patrick, which is can we survive this horror film? Uh, this is where we inject ourselves into the film. So, you know, you and I are working on the Nostromo. We are there. We're working on the ship. We are crew members eight and nine on the Nostromo. Are we surviving alien? Well, now that depends, Damon. I, th I fancy you and I pretty smart. But I also fancy you and I are probably more Parker and Brett types. <laughs> yeah. Like we probably work for Parker and Brett, truth be told. Like Damon and Gara or Martin and Gara, they work for, they answer to Parker and Brett is more, is more likely what the case is. But I would be very much in the Parker camp of like, fuck whatever that is that's happening over there with Kane. Yeah. Why the fuck are you guys even getting near him? Uh, we're we're going to eventually talk about Prometheus and everybody's always up in arms about, they take their helmets off inside that room, even though, it, their little readouts say the atmosphere is breathable. There is no stupider move than ever letting anyone near Kane. 
Yeah. There is no stupider move in any movie in movie history. Right after that thing falls off of him and he wakes up out of his coma, they go have dinner with him. They go sit and eat with him or spits flying and people are talking like it's the dumbest move of all of all time. Me as a as a crew member, knowing damn well that he we shouldn't be anywhere near him, I would have locked myself down in my room and and I would have been on the comms going, Damon, what's happening up there? <laughs> Damon, what's happening? Parker, what's happening up there? What the fuck's going on up there? Give me an update, but I'm not going anywhere near Kane. And I and I'd have one foot in the escape pod the whole time. <laughs> so I think in that respect, I would survive. Now, okay, let's play devil's advocate and say that part didn't happen. Then and I did play along and I'm sitting there with uh with Kane as as the chest burster happens, and now I'm part of the the team that's got to fight this thing. I also think I might be able to survive. Not because uh you know I'm great in anything, but because I've got the same kind of um attitude that Ripley does, which is like, let's let's get the fuck out of here. Let's do it the right way and get the fuck out of here. Um I, but but uh, if I come face to face face if I come face to face with the alien, the odds of surviving it are very small. Let's be honest. Ripley is a four-leaf clover. She's the luckiest woman alive. She's come face to face with it multiple times and continues to survive it, despite no chance of being able to survive it, but she does. But I think I could survive it. So I'm playing the devil's advocate in sense of like putting myself in, in, in the crew member's shoes and saying, you know, like one, again, my, my greatest praise for this movie is how smartly written Ripley is as a character that she is the smartest person in the room and she makes all the right choices. Now, part of the reason I praise that is because I like to think of myself as a very analytical, logical person. And again, one of the reasons I pick apart some badly written horror movies is because I'm like, no one would do that. Like even in the dumbest disconnect, bad choices of horror movies, no one would do that. Like that bugs me when it's just so obvious that a person would not do that. I'd like to think I would slip into the Ripley role where I'm like, don't let them on the ship. What the fuck are you doing? Keep them out of here. Freeze them. Don't let him come in here and examine it. Don't examine shit. Freeze this guy. Let him go. Let him let the scientists at home deal with this guy. I'm not dealing with it. I would like to think I would be Ripley in that sense. But the problem is once the alien gets out and it's in the Nostromo, it's just a roll of the dice. Yeah. Parker and and Lambert aren't doing anything stupid. They're getting cooling canisters together to put onto the ship so they can all survive because they say early on, which I appreciate a little attention to detail, when there's still more of them alive, why don't we all just get on the ship, on the escape pod and get out of here? And it says, well, there's not enough room on there for four people, not enough life support for four people. You know, they're like, what are you going to do, draw straws, like, to survive? obviously people keep getting picked off and then by the end it's only three of them and they're like fuck it we're taking our chances but we need these canisters to like give us a chance to make it with a, a, an escape pod that's meant for we assume two i guess i i, I can't remember right. how, either one maybe i can't remember what the actual pod is looking in there um so they what parker and lambert are doing isn't stupid they're doing no. it as a means to survive they're doing it so they have a chance to get on this escape pod so i'd like to think i'd be one of them but i'd still be fucked like i'm not doing the dumb thing i'm not the guy volunteering yeah. to call through the air ducts like like dallas and i'm certainly not 
you know, Kane being the dumbest one to go down into the chamber and be like, let me see what these eggs do. Um, right. I know Kane I'm was the stupidest of all. I know I'm not that guy. You know what I mean? I know I'm not yeah. that guy. And I know I'm not Brett going to now. Granted, if it was one of my dogs, I would throw down with the alien to save my dog. But fuck that cat. I wouldn't go searching <laughs> for the cat. So, you know, I'm not Brett. I'm not, you know, I'd like to think I'm some combination of Parker and Ripley, which they both seem to yeah. be fairly smart in the way they approach this thing. But again, the problem is Parker did nothing wrong. He was one of the smart guys, but he still died. So that's kind of where I'm at. Like, I'd like to think that I would be the smart one, but I also know just happenstance of being in a fucking ship with a murderous <laughs> alien that there's a chance I'm going to get an alien's tail up my ass. <laughs> yeah, there's a very good chance that's happening. Um, I will tell you something that Parker was doing wrong. He was being way too loud with those coolant tanks. Yeah. Like they were being so loud with no, them. Actually, and I'm like, Lam- that's what- Lambert was being loud. She was yeah, the one she pulling was, like, she was like tossing. Yeah. Clanging. I mean, th- th- I was like, you guys are making way too much noise. And that's where, if I was in that situation, I'd be like, stop fucking throwing the cans. You're going to, yeah. you're going to get, you're going to call that thing over here. But in the panicked like, moment, I get it. Like they're just trying to get the fuck yeah. out as quickly as possible. So she's just yanking the canisters and chucking them down. I mean, like, let's get out of here. Yeah. I get it. Yeah. But yeah, yeah. I get it, but boy, but that that sealed her fate for sure. But but uh, that's what I'm saying. Like even in that moment, they're not doing. They're not like, oh, let's go look no. around the ship and see if if Dallas made it. Fuck no, just get out no. of there. And they're saying no one has getting, that. Yeah. yeah, no one has that stupid moment where they go, I'm gonna take this fucker on. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like no, nobody like, and that happens. Boy, that happens in a lot of horror movies. Yeah, and most people cheer it. Like you, you're in an audience with someone who's like, I'm not going out without a fight. Fuck you. You're not winning that fight. Yeah. You're not winning the fight. You're not going to fight that thing. You, yeah. We are getting the fuck out of here. And, and, and they, they all made the right choice. And I've said it before, Damon, and I'll say it again. True horror is when your characters make the right decision and it still doesn't work. That's exactly what happens in this movie. Yeah, the hierarchy of smarts in this movie goes Ripley to Parker. Like Ripley is the one who is the smartest one in the room and makes all the best decisions. Parker being second best. He's the one who says, why did you let them on the ship? Why don't we just freeze this guy? Let's get the fuck out of here. But still, he's the one who's like, I'll get the canisters because that's what we need to serve. We had to have them. And he still dies. So that's where I kind of feel like I would I, I would like to believe I'd make the decisions of Ripley saying we don't need to go to the ship. We certainly don't need to let this guy on board, you know, all those things. But then I, you know, as you and I are, you know, Parker and Brett's understudies, we would be the ones to be like, well, hold on. We got to go get this canister so we have yeah. life support to make it. And then the alien comes and just, you know, fucking crucifies us both. So I'm yeah. saying I wouldn't survive just because the odds are against it. <laughs> The odds are against you, definitely. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Last category, Patrick. I feel like I know the answer to this one after our discussion here, which is always, is it scary? So, Alien, at the end of the day, is it scary? You know, what's funny is this movie has never scared or terrified me. I've always been just genuinely fascinated by how great it is. Like, it, it it just circumvents, like, fear and all that stuff. But to analyze it for our podcast and to analyze it for what a movie needs to be scary... It has tons of dread. Atmosphere. The atmosphere in this thing is through the roof. The atmosphere of this movie is nothing is safe. Nowhere you go is safe. In space, no one can hear you scream. I mean, it's just this thing is it's in the DNA of this movie that fear and panic and fright and terror and gore and blood and guts and killing. They're all there. It's just done in such a beautiful way that you end up enjoying it. I mean, certainly the girl sitting next to me at the movie theater 
she may have shit herself. I'm yeah. not sure. I didn't, I couldn't smell anything, but she was scared. She got scared. This is a scary movie. This is 100% a scary movie. It might be the scariest sci-fi movie, to be honest. Like I'd have to really yeah, like dig, I'd have to dig into like all the scary sci-fi movies, but this is a event horizons, like disturbing in its own weird it's, way. It's yeah, a very different movie. It's very different. It's good. But I, I don't even know if I'd put it on that level. Like as far as alien, like again, simplistic, surprising stunning and it works again just uh, the face hugger and the chest brush are seen alone make this a mm-hmm. scary movie because two things that you know something bad's gonna happen and you still don't see it coming i st- again uh, you look down into a fucking alien egg i know something <laughs> bad's gonna happen but i didn't necessarily see what happened happening uh the chest burster scene i knew kane was not okay we all knew kane was not okay did i necessarily think a, th- a creature was going to literally crunch through his chest and burst out and look like a silver uh, silver tooth cock no <laughs> i didn't think that at the time so you know yes this movie is absolutely scary um i like i said my biggest regret and you know i through no fault of my own i was a kid my biggest regret is i didn't get to see this first like that i already had an idea of what this movie was before i saw it because i did because you know it's funny i remember i talked about seeing space balls first and the scene with john hurt in that movie um i actually you know what crazy back in the day they used to show full-length movies on cbs on like saturday nights do you remember this Mm-hmm. And they used to have a Saturday night, like, science fiction or horror show. And it would start at, like, 8 o'clock. And the movies were, like, four hours long because all the commercials. They did Aliens. That's the first time I ever saw Aliens was on a Saturday night CBS movie of the week. And what I remember about that was is they actually showed the director's cut. They showed all – because when I saw Aliens from start to finish on, like, a DVD or a VHS after that, I was like, where are those scenes? And it yeah. wasn't until years later that I discovered the CBS version. They added in all of the extra shit that they eventually yeah. did in like the director's cut. It was wild. I was like, where is the scene? And it's not there. So that was my first experience with Aliens was on a CBS 8 o'clock Saturday night movie when I was a kid and Spaceballs. And then you know later I saw Aliens. So my biggest regret, and again, through no fault of my own, I wish I would have seen Alien and seen it in order and been totally surprised by this movie still works still effective still adore it but one of my biggest regrets is i didn't get to experience this fresh as like a new movie viewer that i was like i remember where i was when i saw the chest burster scene and if it's any testament to how scary this movie is my kids have seen aliens they've watched the whole damn thing and they loved it. I mean, they ate it up. They were like, what the fuck is this? The coolest fucking movie you've ever shown us? Because it's rad. They still haven't seen Alien and they don't want to. <laughs> They're scared of it. You know what yeah. I mean? Like there's a, there, it has a reputation. So if if that if that's any indication of, of just the kind of scary we're dealing with, Alien, I'm not going to make any predictions yet, but I'm pretty sure that Alien is the scariest of the entire alien franchise by far. Yeah. I think that's safe to say. I mean, again, we can, yeah. w- you know, we'll debate at the end. Cause again, I'll being honest, like aliens is one of my all time, like top five favorite movies ever. Um, I could recite that movie from start to finish and characters. And we'll, that's going to be our next review in this franchise. Of course, that's where you'll get to hear me fillet it. Like it's a silver tooth <laughs> cock or whatever. Uh, <laughs> Uh, but but yeah alien is alien is incredible and this is like i said this again i just to reiterate what i said at the very start of the show this is the best one-two punch combo of like movie history maybe because and they're so. they're both in the same world the same universe they are similar yet so different 
But again, yeah, you said you're, you made the other comparison is perfect to Terminator to Terminator 2 because I actually like Terminator better than I like Terminator 2. I love yeah. Terminator 2. Terminator 2 is a fantastic film, but I still like Terminator. And I think Terminator is the more horror of mm-hmm. the Terminator films. Terminator 2 is more science fiction than it is that. Aliens is more action than it is horror. There are horror yes. elements for sure. Yes. But it's more action. And then this is more horror. And it's kind of funny. It's flip-flop for me where I'm like, I, and again, it's a it's a shade different. Like, I, I, and I think part of it is because I saw Aliens first. I'm not going to lie. Like, I saw it first and sure. I attached myself to those characters and Hudson and Hicks and all that stuff. So that's probably part of it. But um, I absolutely adore Alien. And it is... I'll go as I'll say it. This is your favorite film of all time. I would say this is the definition of a perfect science fiction horror film. Like there's there. The only criticism I have of this movie is fuck that cat. Like that's literally my only criticism is Jonesy. (laughs) That's it. And that's a joke. I'm not being serious, but like, right. Yeah. I have no real criticisms about this movie. None. I'm telling you, it's my favorite film because it's perfect because I wouldn't change a thing. I mean, when you, when you, when you could, you know, we used to have a a category called rewrite of the living dead and boy, we used it a lot. (laughs) (laughs) This is a movie where I go, don't touch anything. Don't touch a single thing on this. Don't touch a hair on its head. Don't let George, don't let George Lucas near this film. (laughs) No, get away, George, go the other way, the other direction, George. You're not welcome here. Yeah. Uh, All love George, but no, this is not for you. Yeah. (laughs) It's it's perfect. It's absolutely a perfect movie. And that's how you start a franchise review. All right, folks, that is our episode. We are going to be doing these. If you've done our franchise reviews with us before, we've done Texas Chainsaw Massacre. and We've done Nightmare on Elm Street. Um, the episodes are not on like a linear path, meaning we won't just release these one after the other. There are going to be new films, um, other podcasts to pop in here. So it takes time to get through all the movies. But obviously we're doing alien now we will do aliens next alien three alien resurrection prometheus get your god and then alien revenant um and i you know what yeah alien covenant when i say revenant uh, alien covenant and you know what i feel like we got to close it out with like doing a quick like half hour review of alien versus predator movies i feel like we got to do like a quick (laughs) just a quick one just a quick you will not get me to sit down for four hours just a quick that's the problem just a quick just a quick like what the fuck were they thinking um but yeah we're the main six films in a row and uh yeah so it's gonna come this is our franchise review for 2024 we are excited to do this one because as we've stated numerous time alien is your favorite movie and aliens is top five movie for me all time um so this is why we had to do this franchise so that is our first episode in the alien franchise uh, at this point we've gone longer than alien uh i assume <laughs> we've, we've all seen alien I, i'm assuming you've all seen alien at this point if you haven't holy shit did we just ruin this movie for you uh <laughs> <laughs> but, but go watch it again go yeah here's my here's my advice anyone listen to the show that's made it all the way through this seriously go watch it again and look at all the little things we mentioned the sexual references yeah. the the nuances of ash all the little things we talked about go and rewatch it and see if you don't see what we're talking about here because you and i are obsessives who have seen this movie 30 times uh most normal average people are not watching any movie 30 times um but yeah go watch it and see if you catch all the little nuances we're talking about here the horniness of the movie the 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 ash disconnection of the movie all the little things we talked about go watch it and see if you find those as well yeah you will not find uh, you will not find one unbroken seam 
Yeah, it's all incredible. All right, that's our episode. As always, if you got questions, comments, movies you'd like us to review, you got comments on Alien, we'd love to hear your comments on Alien. Please. Send us an email at rotlivingdead at gmail.com. That's rot. Livingdead at gmail.com or find us on all of our social media platforms. Just search Rewind of the Living Dead on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter slash X. Uh, we love to get your messages. We love to get your comments. When we drop this episode, please let us know what you thought. What did you think the first time you saw the chest burster scene or the face hugger scene? Or what was your experience of Alien? Did you see space balls like me and have it ruined for you? I'd love to hear that. If somebody else knows the first time they saw it was watching Bill Pullman and John Candy looking at the alien popping out of his chest. If someone out there that listens to us was in the movie theater in 1979, you must email us. Yes. You must email us and tell us what it was like. I have to know what it was like in the theater when people saw that. Yeah, I'd love to hear that reaction. Absolutely. So, yeah, please send us that message. We'd love to hear from you guys. Um, Also, as always, check us out on all your favorite podcast platforms, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Amazon Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and of course, over on my website, nerdcoremovement.com, or just search anywhere you get your podcast. Just search Rewind of the Living Dead, and you'll find us over there. And you can also hit us up on our own personal social media channels. I am at Damon Martin, and you are? At Director Patrick. And a big thank you, as always, to everyone that tunes in. We are so excited to get into our latest franchise review. This was a big one for us. So enjoy Alien. Go watch it. Enjoy your Silvertooth cock. Uh, We're going to do that as well. And we'll see you back next week for another edition of Rewind of the Living Dead. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you then. Happy New Year.